Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Booster Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Fitrick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Hello, and welcome to the ninth episode of Who's Who in the DC Universe, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag. Along with me, as always, is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly. How you doing, buddy? It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done before. It is a far, far better rest than I go to than I have ever known. <laughs> We're not doing who's who in Star Trek. <laughs> oh, dear God. Yes, of course, because that is the original work of Nicholas Meyer. No, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling very scared right now because I, I am worried that this episode of who's who just might kill me. So <laughs> we'll see, everybody. That's right, people. It's the all forever people issue. Uh, no, uh, this is the special themed issue all about the Legion of Superheroes. Now, it's it's not all, so don't worry. It's because there's 24 entries. Only 12 of them are dedicated to the Legion. So oh, only 12. Okay, great. <laughs> you know what? I we did seven issues of Who's Who in the Legion not too long ago, buddy. You just got to, you got a break and didn't have to be on those. I, I, I did two Who's Who in Star Trek. What do you come on? Stop it. <laughs> I did a collectively like 12 hours of that Legion podcast. <laughs> it took me a year to get it out. Anyway. Uh, only, uh, felt like only felt like 37 hours. That's interesting. Okay. That's Rob's going to be a good sport as we go through yes, this. I am. Uh, go through this who's who. It's actually it's a fun issue. It's a really, really good one. And I think there's a lot of fun stuff to talk about here. So Rob, just if, if, you're, if you're not familiar with it, Rob hates the Legion like the passion <laughs> of a thousand burning suns. So <laughs> in the five-year-later era is like his version of, oh, wow, take something I don't like and put it in drab gray. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Take all the so. fun names away. Take all the primary colors away. Make everybody dour and sad looking. Oh, boy. Yeah. Color me excited. This this issue, this episode, this episode of Russo will either be the longest because it has so many characters that you love. I mean, no. this is like okay. a focus grouped issue for you. Or it'll be the shortest because it's half Legion and I have nothing to say about any of these characters. I'm going to make sure because I, I am leading this issue, which I thought it would have been funnier if Rob did. But anyway, um, I'll, I'll be I leading it. I would have hired Siskoi to do it for me if it had been my turn. <laughs> I literally would have paid him money. What's the Canadian dollar exchange rate right now? Anyway, I – been worth it. At the end of each one, I'm going to make sure to say, what do you think, Rob? <laughs> it'll just be crickets or sighs or snoring sounds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Well, folks, uh, before – before we get too much further, we probably should take a second to thank our sponsor. This episode of the Who's Who podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trade. You got me the giggles. Uh, best online uh, – they're really good for trades. Go there. Buy them from them. You're going to save a bunch of money, uh, up to 42% off with free shipping on orders of $50 or more. What you got, buddy? Uh, well, based on a non-Legion entry in this issue, yes, there are some. 
Uh, I picked Batman, the Golden Age Omnibus Hardcover Volume 1, which reprints Detective Comics numbers 27 through 56, and Batman's 1 through 7, and it features the debuts of, of course, Batman, plus Robin, Commissioner Gordon, the Joker, Catwoman, and the character from this book, Professor Hugo Strange, which to me is one of the more underrated of the Batman villains. Uh, It features a brand new cover by the late, great Darwin Cook. You can't Mm. beat that. 784 pages. This thing is technically bulletproof if you put it in (laughs) front of your chest. The normal price is $75. In stock trades price is $43.50. That is 42% off. So if you want a giant slab of Golden Age Batman, (laughs) this is your book. That's amazing that Hugo Strange goes back that far because all the other characters you named are like, you know, exploded in media. Now, Hugo Strange – well, we'll talk about Hugo Strange later, but it's just he's not one that's really broken through quite as much. Hmm. He's never been in any of the movies. Yeah. So um, I picked uh, a Legion-specific one. I picked Legion uh, by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning, Trade Paperback Volume 1. Now, if you don't – you should know those names. First of all, if you're a fan of this network, then you absolutely know Dan Abnett is a great writer who wrote a lot of Aquaman comics. But together, Abnett and Lanning wrote a ton of different books, including – they're the ones who revitalized. Guardians of the Galaxy, which eventually became mm-hmm. the movie franchise. So uh, this particular incarnation of Legion that they wrote was this really, really cool – it was a dark, dark story. The idea was there was this uh, this group or disease, however you look at it, called the Blight, and it was invading uh, from the darkest regions of space and coming across all the, the galaxy, and it was it was intense. So again, Abnett Lanning, um, you're going to have to help me with the artist's name. I can never say it. Oliver Kaupiel. I think you got it right, actually. Oh, that's that's a first. Okay, <laughs> so the, Olivier, maybe Olivier. Okay. Know, well, the art is absolutely gorgeous. The writing is great. It's two hundred twenty-four pages, full color. Uh, it collects Legionnaires seventy-eight through eighty-one, Legion Superheroes one twenty-two to one twenty-five, and then the Secret Files. And this is what leads into the first Legion Lost series, which was also great by them. Anyway, it normally retails for twenty-four ninety-nine. You can get it for forty-two percent off, so it's only fourteen dollars and forty-nine cents. And if you've been trying to figure out where a good entry point for the Legion is, this. This is one of them. This is a great one because it's it's very uh, accessible. It's dark. It's dystopian. It's uh, a little scary even. So I would highly recommend Legion by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning, Trade Paperback Volume 1. So for these and all your trade, pack, trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Go over to the Contact Us button and let them know the Fire & Water Podcast Network sent you. So that would be awesome. Now – we're going to talk about who's who in the DC Universe number nine. If this is your first time listening to the episode because you're a huge, huge Legion fan or you just like to watch Robin Payne, either one. Uh, the, this who's who ent- uh, this who's who edition was uh, is a 16-issue miniseries. They retail for $4.95, uh, which back in 1991 dollars, I think Rob said could buy a car. And they were the loosely right. format. So you could take them out. You could separate. You could put them in your binders. Uh, you, you could do it you know, alphabetized. You could cross by, by team, whatever you wanted to do. And there's 24 entries per issue, and it really, really focused on the current DC universe at this time. And you know, they even talk about how in the letters page how they they keep they kept you know uh, teasing us that they were going to do who's who in the golden age, and they never did. Mm. But so, but it did focus mainly on the modern age, which is why most of the Legion characters here are all in their 5YL era because that's what it was going on at the time. So when you look at the entry, the front side is the art pinup, right? And on the back side is going to be basically all the text with all your uh, information, your height, weight, all that, and these little inset images. And uh, each sheet is going to be labeled as well with this awesome little border of coloring. This is, again, I say it every month, this is Rob's absolute favorite thing about the, the, the Legion of Superheroes and uh, these who's who. I mean, it's like, a, it's like a, a perfect storm for you, you know, these, these color coding for Legion. So it's great. You get red for hero, black for villain, etc., etc. And we'll talk 
about that as we go. Now, our goal is for you not to have these in front of you while uh, you're listening to the podcast. I know you're probably like in a spinning class and you don't want to sit there and try and manage all these binders as you're going through it. I don't want you to fall and hurt yourself. So we got you covered. We're going to put some of these on our gallery. What's our uh, what's that website, Rob? Fireandwaterpodcast.com. Yep. So they'll be up there for you to view. So with all of that said, why don't we get into this thing? What do you say? All right. Okay. It is Who's Who number nine, cover dated May 1991. It was on the shelves March 26th, 1991. And uh, this is their first official themed issue. Now, they have had some where they're like bat villains, and they had a few. But this is what they call their first themed issue. Now, as you get into the letters, and the cover we'll talk about later because it's, it's just a Legion of Superheroes entry. But when we get to it, we'll actually speak towards it. But the letters page, interesting, they say Michael Yuri uh, is stepping down at this point as the editor of Who's Who. And if you notice, it took four guys to replace him that's unbelievable <laughs> and uh the only other thing i saw in, in the letters page which is interesting to me was there's requests they, they list a bunch of requests like fans asking for who should do art pieces for who's who and firestorm got mentioned twice one person asked for firestorm by george perez which i thought was pretty awesome and another person asked for firestorm by richard pierce rayner uh i wasn't familiar with that name i had to look him up apparently he drew hellblazer for a while and also was famous for uh, doing the road to perdition so Interesting. Uh, wow, yeah, that one seems to come out of nowhere. And then another one in that list that seems a bit of a head-scratcher, Aquaman by Pat Broderick. Uh, oh, okay. okay. I mean, I really like Pat Broderick, but I mean, he's never drawn Aquaman before, so it's just kind of like, what? Okay. They asked for Frank Miller and Commissioner Gordon, which, of wow. course, would have been really, really interesting, but that was never going to happen. Uh, and then they do mention uh, Captain Marvel by Chuck Patton, which would have been amazing, because anything, oh. by, anything by Chuck Patton would have been amazing. So, yeah. uh, Batman by Neil Adams. I mean, some of these people were really swinging for the fences. There, one, there is one other comment I want to make uh, about one of the letters, and it mentions um, – there's a letter here by Mark O. Squire. Mm-hmm. And it talks about um, – he mentions Supergirl, and he says uh, – she couldn't have, and then he mentions he segues that into something about Alfred Pennyworth and he says but I doubt Alfred Pennyworth could support his own book and I'm like well, yeah no he couldn't but he could get his own TV series apparently <laughs> 30 years later um, but in the but in the response uh, Robert Greenberger or Michael Yuri excuse me says well the reason that Supergirl will not appear in Who's Who is because she is no longer part of DC's continuity and that yeah. sound you hear is Dr. Ange sobbing Yes, well, he dies a little more every time. Now, they're not too far off, though, from the Matrix Supergirl getting introduced at this point. Right, but, right. but yeah, that is uh, that is the sound of his heart hurting. So, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's get into our first entry. And what a one to kick it off, man. Black Canary by Dick Giordano. Woof! Uh, it's Black Canary in sort of a, a classic, like, she's running, she's got her hand outstretched, looks like she's about to unleash a sonic scream. And in the background is... Kind of a serpenty, mm-hmm. you know, or it's mm-hmm. white ink serpenty. Uh, a great-looking Oliver Queen, and also the sign to Sherwood Florist. I love this, I, and, and the logo there. Uh, we'll talk, we'll touch on that a bit, but it's a it's this bird flying with the Black Canary words written there. So, what, what do you think of this one, buddy? Oh, I think this is great. I mean, I, I, Dick Giordano, of course. I don't even have to possibly compliment him. He's one of the best. Uh, and this reminds me of the one we did last month with Phantom Stranger, where I said that one looked like the most like a classic who classic who's who <laughs> listing. And that's what this does, except just the surprint is reversed. Because in, in, in the regular series, the paper would have been white and the surprint mm-hmm. would have been a different color here they, because they could do full bleeds. Uh, you've got the, the background as a, you know, gradation and then you've got the reverse on the white. Um, it's interesting thing is that it mentions her first appearance is Justice League of America number 75, uh, which would be referencing that bonkers origin story 
Oh, uh, really? Th- from, oh. from JLA 219 and 220, because that's that's the story that mentions that you know when when she when quote unquote the original Black Canary crossed over. Well, that's when she the, was that's dying. When swap happened. Right, that's the swap. They literally show that scene of where Superman's carrying her, and then she starts dying, and he's like, oh, okay, here you go. So they're referencing that in that first appearance, and yet they don't make any mention of that origin story in this listing. Hmm. Um, and it was uh, the text is by Sarah Byam, and I yep. was completely unfamiliar with who that is until I looked her up. And she was writing the Black Canary miniseries that was around this time, so that makes perfect it's sense. It's actually I, – I, well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I guess very specific on this one. The miniseries is six months away from starting. Okay. So they're actually – this is all set up, and this isn't the only entry in the book that they did this for. So uh, the logo, that's why I want – I paid special attention to the logo. That's the logo that's going to be carried in the miniseries, and you're right. It is the writer and artist both from the miniseries. Yeah, cool stuff. Uh, yeah. And another little detail I like, her height is 5'4". That's actually a reasonable height. Most superhero women are like 5'8", five, 5'9", five, and most women are not that tall. I like that in particular this Black Canary is petite. That's and one fifteen nice, nice is a re- one fifteen is a reasonable weight for that height as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yep. that's good. I like that detail. And they, and you mentioned the Sonic Scream is looks great. Uh, yeah, it's, this is one of the great characters in DC Comics lore. Ryan Daly would agree, and so it, she deserves a great listing like this. And and this image uh, by Giordano to me like is burned in my brain. Is like this is stock art for Do- Black Canary. Oh, this yeah. is what she's supposed to look like. This, this is, is what the superpowers card would have looked like. Right, exactly. This is what super. This is what Black Canary looks like to me. Is, is this mm-hmm. image right here? So now, if you're unfamiliar with the post crisis uh, Black Canary, I did jot down a few notes for you. The gist of it is, you know, her mother was the cli- at least in post crisis. Her mother was the Golden Age. Black Canary, who is uh, – and now Dinah, the, the new one, wants to follow in her footsteps. The mother doesn't want her to. They become estranged. She ends up developing the sonic scream. She joins the Justice League. Now, what they really focus on in this entry is what's happening with Dinah currently because, again, they're really focusing on current stuff. So this is just after the Longbow Hunters where she was uh, attacked and injured horribly. Her internal organs and vocal cords were damaged, and she now – I know. She, well, she's lost her sonic scream, and she's lost the ability to have children. And they talk about how she suffers from a lot of depression, um, but, but she eventually overcomes it. That's what sort of happens at the end of the entry. This is how she's overcome that. And of course, again, this is all sort of building towards that miniseries that's on the horizon. And at this point, um, she was appearing in the Green Arrow series, which was on issue 45. And again, six more months till the mini. And uh, yes, yeah, Sarah Byam. Yeah, I hadn't heard of her either. I, I I, I'm sure she's got other credits, but this is what uh, they put her on this one for. And, um, you know, I, I got to say, Black Canary, I mean, I, she wasn't that big in, in 1991. But since then, she has really gone on to become one of the major female stars of the DC Universe, in my opinion. I mean, and I'm not, I don't think I'm being biased by Ryan, but I mean, just everywhere she's appeared, I mean, the Birds of Prey stuff, she was in Justice League Unlimited, she was a Smallville, freaking Arrow, you know, the, has done a lot with Black Canary and White Canary and all that stuff. So um, I, I, I see her as a major player in the DC universe now. Yeah, I mean there's obviously there's a lack of f- female superheroes and and so she fits that bill as well. But yeah, I mean she's created in what? 1945 initially. I mean that's you know 75 years ago and she's still ticking. So, yep. you know, one of the one of the great DC heroes. And if you want more on her, you can listen to of course Ryan Daly's Power Fishnets podcast, uh, the Birds of Prey podcast or the World Worlds podcast or just a few places. All right. Up next, one of my all-time favorite heroes, Blue Devil. I'm looking at the poster hanging on my 
wall right now, the, the original comic book promotional poster of Blue Devil. I love this character. Uh, this piece is done by Linda Medley and Steve Moncus. And I've got questions for you on this, Rob, in a minute. So get your, start thinking about your opinion on this. So it, it's a pretty fair representation of Blue Devil. You've got uh, this pink Cadillac, which his girlfriend Sharon was famous for driving. You see her driving it there. They've got Marla and Gopher and Wayne Tarrant and Norm, which are all his supporting cast. And uh, Blue Devil standing on like one one foot on a seat, the other foot on the windshield of the pink Cadillac, which is fun. It's at a jaunty angle. All the pieces in this uh, art are right. But for some reason, it just doesn't interest me, and I can't figure out why. And that's why I need your help, Rob. Help me out. What am I, what am I looking at wrong here, or am I not? I, 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 I'm surprised to hear you say that because I love this piece. Do you really? Okay, good. Uh, yes. I want I to. Think I that, want to. I, this, this combination of Menley and Moncuse I think is superb. I, absolutely, I mean, I, I will admit, Blue Devil is one of those books that works for me in fits and starts. You okay. know, I've read I've read it here and there, and I kind of go, eh, alright. And then I got, like, the Summer Fun Special, which I dearly love. So it, it really is one of those oh, things that great. just, it never clicks with me the way it did with you. But boy, I love this listing. I think this is, I, I yeah, I think this is one of the highlights of the book. It looks, it looks really fun. I, as you mentioned, the jaunty ankle. I mean, did they ever draw the book? These two? No, on no. Sort? Okay, this no, is but just Linda like a Bentley's just she's got the perfect style for Blue yes. Devil. She's mm-hmm. got this fun, cartoony but action-oriented comic book style that's just ideal for the character. As far as I know, she never worked on him again. Uh, so no, so she. It is the perfect fit, but I, I can't explain why it doesn't thrill me and it makes me sad that it doesn't because there's nothing artistically wrong it's not like oh that doesn't look like norm no it absolutely does look like norm you know the, everybody looks great everyone looks on model it just doesn't thrill me like it should and i can't figure it out oh well but i'm going to work to to making this come into my heart that's what i need to do so <laughs> fair i wonder why they didn't get paris collins i mean he was he's the he's the co-creator as they list him here and he was still doing stuff for dc so that seems like a i mean again i love this listing but that seems like a strange choice not to get Paris Collins as he was still yeah. working. I mean, he's doing stuff in Who's Who. He's doing the New Gods entries in right, Who's right, Who. Right, so, right. yeah, very strange. Mm-hmm. So, um, if you're if you're unfamiliar with Blue Devil, <laughs> sit down, folks. This may take a while. No, um, it, basically, it's Dan Cassidy, and he was a stuntman and a special effects uh, extraordinaire. And he worked in Hollywood, and he was working on this movie called Blue Devil. And so he builds this costume, which is supposed to represent the main antagonist of the film, the Blue Devil creature, the monster, and it gives him increased strength and agility. He's able to do practical effects for a lot of the stuff scenes in the movie rather than using you know a crane to lift a big boulder he can lift it himself so he's he builds this costume meanwhile they're filming on this ancient island where these, these ancient runes and temples and stuff and two of the characters in between filming accidentally release a demon back onto earth so dan jumps in the blue devil suit and goes well i can fight the demon in this he goes to fight the demon and gets zapped by a mystic blast which traps him inside the costume permanently. The costume becomes bonded to his skin, and from then on, he's an honest-to-goodness blue devil. And that's the whole premise of the series from, from there forward. He doesn't want to be a hero. He's very reluctant. He, doesn't, he keeps falling into these situations where he has to be a hero, and he doesn't really want to be. There's a lot of humor in the series. Um, and, and I should have mentioned, by the way, you get the creator credit for Dan Mishkin, Gary Cohn, and, and Paris Collins. And the guys wrote a seriously funny book. I mean, those three together were just magical when they were doing the book. Some of the fun stuff in there, uh, they, they labeled him a weirdness magnet because stuff kept happening to him. It's very, very strange things. And I don't know if you know about this part, Rob, but he actually – he moved into the house of weirdness. You know how they had the house of mystery and house of secrets? Well, the writers created the house of weirdness, and uh, Kane 
is the guy who runs the House of Weirdness, which is great. So Dan has a, a, a house – he has a room in the House of Weirdness, and it, basically he opens one door, and he's in Los Angeles. Uh, he opens another door, and he's in Metropolis. So he can go across country just walking across the house, which is super fun. I did wonder why it gave Base of, Metrop- base of Operations Metropolis East Coast, Malibu West Coast. Yep. I know superheroes can travel great distances. Uh, you know, like in Game of Thrones, they could just get places where they need to be. But that was a little curious when I saw it. <laughs> and the little inset pictures has got him fighting Neberos, which is the giant demon who trapped in the costume. You see uh, him with his uh, his kid sidekick, which he wanted nothing to do with, which was Gopher in the guise of Kid Devil, who actually went on to do quite a few, thi- quite a few things in the DC Universe. And then you see him watering the grass of the House of Weirdness. Um, super fun. At this point, he was really out of the picture. He His series had been over for several years. He hadn't appeared anywhere except for early Secret Origins for three years. Three years prior to this, he they only rolled him out for big crossovers, and that was just to put him in the background at this point. Like you know, Armageddon two thousand one is at about this time, and he's sort of in the background, milling around. There, that's about it. And two more years from now, he'll appear in Showcase. So why they put him in here, I don't really know. Um, it's interesting that they did. I'm glad they did, certainly, but uh, a little odd. Now his border is red for hero. Mark that down, Rob. I know you like to keep track of that stuff. Hold on, uh, let me get my pe- <laughs> hero. Okay, got it. Yeah, good. Uh, it's written by Mark Wade. I wish they'd gotten Michigan and Cohen to write it. It would have been a little more fun, but that's okay. And uh, his powers. Oh, okay, so um, he's super strong. He's got incredible agility. He can shoot these explosives out of his uh, out of his knuckles. He carries this trident, uh, which he flies around with. A, like he holds onto the trident, and the trident has a rocket, and he can fly around with the trident and things like that. So really great character. And um, if you want more on him, you could check out the uh, – it's it's now gone, but uh, it's are no longer being produced, but there was a shout at the – Shout out the Devil podcast, uh, which was all about Blue Devil. We did an episode, me and Diablo Frank, on the Fire and Water podcast network. You can check out episode 113 of the Fire and Water podcast where we talk all about Blue Devil. Or he's a star of the upcoming Swamp Thing series on the DC Universe app, which is crazy. He's going to be on television. <laughs> I, I don't Being played by – Oh, that um, Ian Ziering. That's right. Ian Ziering. Exactly right. Yeah. From 90210 and Sharknado. <laughs> So, all right. Well, I have decided that this is officially uh, an entry that I'm going to love. So that's that. I'm not going to brook any more argument from you, Rob. I'm sorry. Okay, excellent. Up next is the Bronze Tiger, this really fantastic drawing by Luke McDonald and uh, Jeff Isherwood. It is a Bronze Tiger climbing through the jungle. He's got, like, his foot raised up on, on like, an, a, stump, a stumpy tree, and his hands outstretched, outstretched, and there's lots of cool shadows, and they've done a good job effectively making it look like night, uh, even though he's running around in an orange costume, which might be a little easy to see at night. Uh, but he looks great. Uh, what do you think of this one? I think it's a great drawing. I'm a little dubious about that he is – that it's Bronze Tiger because he is just like super bulky, like massively. But those leg muscles are crazy. Okay. And I just think guys that are supposed to be kind of athlete, you know, athletes, kind of like Batman level things should be kind of more lean and not these massive brutes. And he kind of looks like that here. But But the drawing itself is really beautiful with all the – twisty trees and all the lighting and stuff like that. I wish the logo was a little more involved. It's just the yeah. typeface, just bronze tiger. Uh, but nevertheless, I like I, the pose is nice. I'm not sure. I guess he's running. I'm not sure what he's doing. He looks like he's doing something, but we don't see what he's looking at somebody or something, but we don't, it's off page. I think he's stalking in the jungle. So he may be, this, okay. this may be like a pause. Like he was running through the woods and pausing for a moment where he gets his bearings and then goes is kind of how I read that. But yeah, it's, it's a neat piece, but it's, it is a little extreme in the muscles, certainly, but it is the 90s, so you kind of take that. Um, let's see. Uh, the deal with Bronsteiger is he, as, as a kid, as a 10-year-old kid, this burglar breaks into his house and kills his dad, right? So this kid turns around and kills the burglar. 
pretty, pretty, pretty hostile. And the kid's full of hate and rage growing up. They get him hooked up with martial arts to try and get control of this hate and rage. He ends up mastering all the martial arts skills. He goes, he studies abroad. He follows the same instructors that Bruce Wayne used. Uh, ends up getting hooked up with O Sensei and meets uh, Richard Dragon there. And together they end up becoming agents of the CBI, which is sort of like the CIA, and they become badasses. And eventually he gets caught up with the League of Assassins, and they brainwash him, and he becomes an assassin. And eventually he gets rescued from that, and they try to deprogram him. And one of the ways they're deprogramming him is by putting him on the Suicide Squad. He's still very, very, very violent. He ends up in a bit of a romance with uh, off and on again with Vixen, so um, which is you know it, it, he's a pretty cool character. He, they, he hasn't got quite the exposure I think he deserves. I think he deserves a little bit more. He's a pretty awesome martial arts guy, but um, he's he's, in, he's neat. And uh, the text is written by Robert Greenberger. The border is obviously red because he's a hero. And uh, his powers he doesn't really incredible uh, martial arts guy. Just uh, you know. Top of the top, you know, Bruce Lee kind of martial arts level sort of thing. And um, his first appearance was Richard Dragon, Kung Fu Fighter number one from April, May 1975. Now, at this point, Suicide Squad was on issue 52, and he was appearing on there as a member. And if you want more on the Bronze Tiger, you can check out the Task Force X podcast. Or um, Diallo Frank actually used to feature him on his uh, DC Bloodlines blog as well. All right. Here we go, Rob. This is the beginning. The beginning <laughs> of Rob's joy, folks. Rob found his joy with Chuck Tane, the bouncing boy of the Legion of Superheroes, drawn by Ty Templeton. It is, a, it is his wonderful image of, in the background, a city is burning. And in the foreground, there's this soldier and bouncing boy, uh, the five-year-later uh, five version of bouncing boy, because he's just wearing regular clothes and he's got a beard. But he has inflated himself into beach ball-like sh- sh- uh, shape and is banging himself into this guy. In fact, there's a giant sound effect that goes, boy! So uh, what do you think of this one? Masterfully done by Ty Templeton, buddy. Oh, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful image. I love it. He looks so happy yes. that he's doing this. He's got his little feet sticking out. I love that it's got a sound effect. Is this the only who's who listing with a sound effect? I can't think I, of another one. I can't think uh, of one, but who knows? Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's a great drawing. It's a great way to start. I mean, this one, this this is one of the few, I'd say, five-year legion, whatever the – F they're called listings that actually has some joy to it. It looks kind of fun. Uh, on the inset, you got him. You got him there with uh, with uh, Lornu. Uh, and I will say this: there's a line that uh, Tom Zoller used to say about the Bouncing Boy that I will repeat here. We used to say it in school where he would say, "Bouncing Boy is every." comic book nerd's hero because he's a fat dude who married a woman who could turn herself into triplets uh, <laughs> and he, he's just like living the dream man so uh no this is a, a beautiful listing although i will say i know i beat this drum too much but his name is bouncing boy wait 227 no no <laughs> he is he is perfectly spheroid he is not 227 pounds that's impossible <laughs> but okay other than that it's great Okay, fair enough. Uh, it's funny, it's, uh, your notes are reflecting mine as well. The first thing I have written on there is every nerd's idol, and I, I, laid, I laid out the exact same stuff you did. So, you <laughs> um, the, the interesting, so his history real quick is he's a goofball who uh, ended up drinking the super plastic, which is sort of like drink, drinking Diet Mountain Dew, but anyway, uh, and his power is to inflate like a giant beach ball. Now, he was rejected by the Legion twice. He eventually, uh, they eventually admitted him to the team and found out that really, he's, he's not the heart and soul of the team, but by golly, he's close. With his bravery, his tenacity, his gung-ho spirit, he really becomes a well-treasured member of the team. And uh, him and, and uh, well, Duplicate, uh, or was it um, 
duo damsel are the first married couple on the team, which is pretty cool. And they eventually go on to supervise the Legion Academy. And by this point, now they're managing the United Planets Militia Academy. And at this point, his wife is uh, she started off as you said, triplicate girl. Now she lost one duplicate, then she lost another duplicate. So it's just her and him now. She's in single form, but they're happily married. And I, I got to say that bottom inset picture, the one where she's kind of got her arms around him. Uh, I used this in a, a Legion of Super Bloggers entry one time, and, and we used to we do these segments called Hot or Not. And one of the earliest ones I did was Pouncing Boy's hot. He is. He's 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 sexy. He's got this great personality. You can't help but fall in love with him. You know, it's there's something about the guy. He's got presence. So I love this guy. I think he's fantastic. So the entry here is written by Tom and Mary Beerbaum, who are writing the Legion Superhero series at this point with Keith Giffen. His border is obviously red for uh, for hero. We've talked about his powers already. His first appearance goes all the way back to Action Comics number two seventy six, which is May nineteen sixty one. And uh, I absolutely love this entry, and I love this character, and I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I love how it ends with uh, – it says the surviving Lorne New seems to have no doubt in her mind that she is married to the, one of the most bravest, kindest, most heroic men to have ever worn a Legion flight ring. That's nice. Yeah. I like that. And that inset that you talked about of the two of them snuggling kind yeah. of is really sweet. It's it's great. It's great. Um, the, the pose is great. Mm-hmm. It's very it's it's very warm. It's not I mean, it's not like, oh, we're holding hands. It's it's kind of an intimate shot. I don't mean that in like a sexual way, but it's she's she's got her arms around him and they're smiling. It's a great little photo. And I love the inset of him too. the little driver's license photo. He looks yeah. looks great. That picture of him and Lorna are, are, is one of my favorites in Who's Who because it looks like – and the best way I can describe it is it looks like they're hanging out with a bunch of friends and they're sitting on the couch and she's sitting behind him and just got her arms mm-hmm. draped around him. It's just mm-hmm. a very casual I love you sort of romantic pose. It's really touching. It's very real and she's super hot too by the way. So can, Now, I don't know anything about the Legion as we know. Thankfully. Do I want, do I want to find out – did like did some writer eventually like have to like break these two up because that's just the way comics are written at some point or did they stay kind of happy? Well, it's not too long after this where Legion history starts getting rewritten every five minutes. Um, actually, by this point, Legion history was already rewritten. But uh, in two, this is 1991. In 1995, they rebooted everything. So this version of the Legion essentially goes away. And you get new incarnations of the Legion over and over. Now, could Bouncing Boy and Duplicate or Duo Damsel be a part now in some iteration of the Legion? It's possible. But I don't think this incarnation of them were, was ever split up. So, okay, that, that's and, kind of what I was going after. There was no identity crisis for the Legion of Superheroes. Well, no, but I mean, think about it though. For her, and we'll talk. Well, you know, we'll save it for our discussion about her because uh, okay. she's, she's also in this issue, folks. So we'll talk right. about that more right. for what she went okay. through personally. But no, I, I think they stay together as a couple. And if uh, Cisco comes back with facts otherwise, then I will just choose to ignore those. So. If you want more on Chuck Tane, you should look up the Legion of Super Bloggers. It's an amazing blog with lots of our friends from the Firewater Podcast Network, which uh, has its origins tied into the Who's Who podcast just a bit. Um, also, check out the Legion of Superheroes cartoon. It's super fun and bouncing boys on the on the cartoon, and it's a great, great thing. And I'll mention lots of other Legion stuff as we get going through this issue. All right, up next is Dev M, another Legion entry. Rob can't hold himself together. He's so excited. And it is this guy in – it's a very weird outfit. It's, it's, this is, these are the kind of things Keith Giffen liked to put people in during the Legion five-year-later era. And by the way, this is drawn by Keith Giffen and Al Gordon. It's got almost like a 18th century you know, going to, going to the king's court kind of look combined with everyday – uh, coveralls, you know, it's like he's, he's wearing everyday sort of pants, but the top part of his body is looks like he should have, you know, he's got like a big, um, what do you call that, pendant. He's got big decorative piping on the costume. You see what I'm saying? How it looks kind of like courtly. 
Well, he looks like he's off uh, Mutiny, on the, Mutiny on the Bounty. Yeah, okay. There you go. Yeah, exactly. All right. So that's the kind of look they give a lot of people in this era. But he's standing there, and his hands are bloody. He's obviously just killed someone or done something horrible. In the background, you see these flames, and you see what – I don't know whether they're uh, uh, pieces of wood or somebody's ribcage burning. And his hair has been mostly shaved except these weird little stripes he's got uh, shaved on his head. What do you think of this art, Rob? Uh, This is one of the list things that when I look at who's who, I zip right by it and I am going to – I'm going to do that again here. Just you, just you, just keep going. Okay. All right. It's not my favorite look for Dev M. That's for sure. Uh, I, I like the costume. The hair has always just driven me crazy. Anyway, here's the deal with Dev M. All right. Oh, I should mention when you flip it over the inset picture, it's actually just a replica a replication from the front. It's not <laughs> an original inset picture. That really bothers me. So anyway. So Dev M is – he's a Daxamite, which means he's basically kind of like Superman. In fact, in pre-crisis, he was from Krypton. So anyway, in this uh, post-crisis world, he is from the 20th century, and he was this juvenile delinquent and a bully. He was a contemporary of uh, Largand or Monel or Valor, whatever you want to call him. He was a contemporary of Monel. And he was very cruel to him, wasn't very nice. Through a series of circumstances, he ends up in the 30th century, just like Largan did, Monel. And there he tries to become a bit of a better person. He becomes this espionage agent. He's pretty good at it, actually. But things spiral out of control, and he ends up going insane. And this, it's interesting, this issue came out the same time as Legion number 18. Well, the next month, this guy, Dev M, is responsible for the destruction of the moon. And when I say the moon, I mean, yes, our moon. He is responsible for the destruction of the moon in the month follows. So it's not in the entry here, but it was right about to happen, and it's pretty horrible when it happens. Ugh. So your inset picture shows him with Monel. You see him when he's younger and has his hair and a little more heroic looking, and um, then you see another inset picture of I think uh, I forgot what that is, but it's a battle that happened somewhere in, in the Five YL stuff. So. Um, Without getting into it much more, you know, uh, you check out the Legion book at this time if you want Dev M. And uh, Legion Superhero Bloggers, obviously, is a great place to look for him. Also, uh, he apparently appeared on the Krypton TV series. I, so, look at that. I don't know if he had a big role or not. I just found it, stumbled across that on the internet. Written, all right, all right. Written again by Tom and Mary Beerbaum, uh, and his border is black for villain, which sort of makes sense. First appearance goes all the way back to Adventure Comics number 287 from September 1961. Woof. I'm not, I'm not laughing because I think that's lame. I'm just amazed at like what level DC character is this? Oh, like, I see. Level level Z, and he's on a TV show. Like <laughs> it's amazing. It's well, a- there's only so many Kryptonians they ever you know created in the Silver Age, so they needed one more. So right. right. Um, by the way, as far as first appearances go, I did forget to mention one a couple entries back. Blue Devil's first appearance is actually in Fury of Firestorm number twenty-four. So just saying. Double reason to pick up that issue. Go back and get it. All right, we're gonna move. On. We're gonna move on to our next entry. Oh, random Rob. drop in there. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> another another Legion entry, Rob. So um, this one is Dirk Morgana, who is also known as Sunboy normally, and it is an image of him. It's by Colleen Duran and Al Gordon. So you've got him. He's standing on this rocky terrain with space in the background and planets in the background, and he's got one foot raised up on a rock, and he's, his whole body is a flame. He's got flames just pouring off of him. So not like the Human Torch, where the Human Torch is burning, but more like um, uh, more like Jean Grey when she would have like flames coming off of the Phoenix or something like that. So what do you uh, 
what do you think of this uh, piece, Rob? Love the drawing. I mean, yeah. it's Colleen Doran. Colleen Doran's a great artist, so that's a great drawing. I mean, I think he's the lead singer of Mr. Mister. I don't exactly remember. I'd have to go back and look. Could be. Uh, Could but, be. Uh, that's Scarf no, or, or Chicago. But yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, again, I just we know from the we know from like the first issue. I'm just dubious of this whole thing of taking these characters and making them look so painfully dull and boring. But this drawing by itself is great, so I, I like it on that level. I don't think he's painfully boring. I mean, it's it's him not wearing a super. Superhero costume. There's nothing wrong with that. He's just in regular clothes. They happen to be pink and red. But uh, so I think it's perfectly fine that he's in regular clothes, especially this kind of character. I think it looks great. Okay. And you said Colleen Duran's excellent. Yes. And, and they got and they paired her with Al Gordon, who was inking uh, Keith Giffen on the Five YL stuff. So it's a good good pairing. So uh, I love this guy's origin. We've covered him a few times. Each one of his Who's Who entries are a bit of a treat for me. I love what they do with him for Who's Who. They talk about his origin, which is you know he's this handsome rich kid, right? But he turns out, at least according to the entry, he's actually a pretty good guy. He worked hard though. He ends up in this situation where Doctor Regulus uh, is a scientist working with his father, and there's an accident that Doctor Regulus causes, which injures Dirk Morgan, which gets Doctor Regulus fired. Well, Dr. Regulus does the logical thing. Instead of going to the unemployment office, he tries to kill Dirk. And uh, he ends up accidentally giving Dirk powers. So they become sort of uh, arch enemies. So, but as Dirk Martin becomes Sunboy, he becomes this teen idol. He actually, they say it's the closest the Legion ever got to being like, you know, teen, you know, uh, Tiger Beats type stars. And when he's on duty, he's an exemplary member of the Legion, but when he's off duty, he's kind of a bad boy. And eventually he ends up suffering a nervous breakdown. Now, during the collapse of the United uh, Planets, which we'll talk a lot more about later, the, the whole society collapses basically. And he was the Legion leader at that time. So the Legion is falling apart around him, which really drove him down and, and emotionally and just really did a lot of damage. He ends up, uh, after all, it's all said and done, as the spokesman for EarthGov, which is the government of Earth. Well, unfortunately, he has become a puppet of this very, very corrupt government regime. And unknowingly, he's working uh, for basically an alien invasion who, uh, who's controlling the government. It's very sad, and he goes through a lot of really bad stuff. Um, his powers are to generate heat and light. Now, I think Siskoid and the girls uh, who do a hot moon stuff would step in and tell you that everything bad that happened to him, he deserved. They think he, if I remember right, I think they think pretty poorly of Sunboy. But uh, I, I haven't had a lot of exposure to his uh, skeevy side, so I, I've only seen what he went through in the 5YL, and he did some bad things, but I felt like he just he had no choice at that point. It's a very sad, tragic tale. Anyway, uh, the writers again, Tom and Mary Beerbaum, Borders Red. We've talked about his powers. First appearance is Action Comics number 276, all the way back to May 1961. And, um, yeah, that's it. It's the inset picture. So you've got him getting irradiated where he gets his powers. You see him fighting Dr. Regulus, and then you see him showing off with a legion with his powers. Cool stuff. All right, up next is Dr. Fate. Here you go. Yeah, Blue Devil and Dr. Fate and Firehawk all in one issue. Oh, my gosh. So this art is by Vince Garano. I think I'm saying that wrong. And Peter Gross. So it's Dr. Fate, the female version, specifically Inza Nelson, floating in the air with a, like a, an onk sort of spell going on. And behind her are the tower in Salem and a um, – uh, townhouse in New York, and there's some cool clouds and pink lightning and stuff like that. They've got the Dr. Fate logo, which adorned the current Dr. Fate series at this time, and her helmet is very, very, very stylized at this point. Uh, it, it's it's just very smooth, very uh, uh, and with this little tiny point on the top. It's very different from what we'd seen before. What do you think of this piece? I think it's, very, I think it's really nice. Uh, I'm not that familiar with this iteration of Dr. Fate. I mean, I knew that at some point Inza took over, 
I like the pose. It's it's pretty sexy, and the doctor and it, it's it's the rare female superhero that is not uh, showing as much skin as humanly possible. And in fact, she's showing no skin uh, at all. I mean, of course, again, that's the that's the variation on the Doctor Fate costume. But as we all know, it was the '90s, and they definitely could have given her a boob window, or whatever. <laughs> you know, it would have been like a Sue Storm thing. Uh, I love the inset. I love the I like that the helmet has been changed a bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's I mean that original helmet is like the best thing ever. Yes, but it I is. liked it. This iteration of it, of the slight lighting that Garano, I think, as I say it, puts on it, mm-hmm. um, and the nice inset. So I think this is a, a very solid listing. Like I said, I don't know a lot about this iteration of the character, and they do kind of in the history just basically talk about both because it mentions his first appearance was more fun comics fifty five, and then this version, which is Doctor Fate twenty five. So it's basically listing for for both, even well, though even though it's it leans on Inza. Basically. Actually, I'm going to correct you there. That's it, it, not they're not saying that's. Kent's first appearance. They're saying that's her first appearance, but Kent was Dr. Fate in that issue. Well, that's true. Okay, right. It says Kent as Dr. Fate, comma, Inza. So it's Inza's first appearance, but Kent was Dr. Fate is what they're trying to say. Okay, all right. So so I'm sorry for the specifics, but Dr. Fate's kind of a a big thing for me. Um, As far as the art goes – I, I like it, you know, and, and the only the, the the sexualization of the character. The only thing I don't like is that they did try and sex her up here. Like her her breasts are way ridiculously separated. Like it looks like uh, doesn't look natural. Uh, that's that's the big concern there. They, they draw a lot of attention to the chest, but it doesn't look like a natural chest. But other than that, yeah, it's a. I see. I, I'm very conflicted on this era because. It's not my favorite era of the book. However, I was a letter hack at the time, and I got printed in that book almost every month in the letter column. <laughs> and, and I did love it at the time. I, I was trying – I don't know. Like the artist is not necessarily my favorite either. It, it's good. It's interesting. This is some of the best of his work, but it doesn't – it's hard to fall in love with it. Part of the deal is – all right, so we talked about it. It's the Inza Nelson version of Dr. Fate, and what's going on here is – so far, we had the traditional Dr. Fate of Kent and Naboo. Then we had Eric and Lynn Strauss, and now we've got Inza. So it, it, this is so new at this point. The, the book has only been on the stands with this incarnation for three months. Basically, J.M. DiMatteis wrote the first 24 issues. Now they're on issue 27, which is the third issue into the Bill Messner Loeb's run, which is like, like a lot of Bill Messner Loeb comics. It's like almost really, really good. It's it's entertaining, but not as great as you want it to be. So this is all about Inza's adventures. And I guess part of what makes it a little hard is that we had just gone through this 24-issue J.M.D. Mateus room, which was so emotional and so powerful. And we had Linda Strauss as Dr. Fate. So we already had a female Dr. Fate. And then three months later, we get another female Dr. Fate. So it didn't have the same impact that it could have had um, as going, wow, they've really changed up Dr. Fate. So it, it's, I struggle with it a bit. The hel- in, in this version, the helmet has kind of a mind of its own. I mentioned the distinctive look. Um, it's it's just okay for me. That's that's my struggle, I guess, on this one. All right. All right. So it's written by Peter Sanderson. Uh, the border is purple for su- Supernatural. Arguably, you could have put it red for Hero as well. The powers, obviously, lots of magic. One of the things they talk about is this version of Dr. Fate doesn't necessarily cast spells. He just thinks what they want to do, and it happens. And uh, we've, you've already read out the first appearances. And if you want more on Dr. Fate, you can check out the Lords of Order podcast by our buddy Ed Moore. All right. Up next is Firehawk. Oh, my gosh. From the Firestorm book. So this is uh, Lorraine Riley in her second Firehawk costume, which is the blue and orange one. She's got her arms outstretched. It's uh, drawn by Barry Kitson, by the way, I should point out. Uh, She's got her arms outstretched. She's flying straight up. She's got this great little Firehawk logo, which is outlined by almost like her wing design. It's again, it's purple. um, I'm sorry. It's blue, orange, and red, which looks great. Her hair is white. It's really a great-looking costume. Uh, And Barry Kitson does an expert job illustrating it it seems a little stiff 
But other than that, I, I really like it. What do you think of it? Uh, I think uh, – okay. Uh, I think the costume is great. We've already talked about this because we've done episodes of Fire and Water on this character. Yeah. I think the, the, the character is really cool. The the costume, this new costume is absolutely fantastic. The logo is one of the best logos I've ever seen on a superhero. But this listing to me is deadly dull. Yeah, it's, it's, it's stiff. It's right? just straight ahead, straight ahead pose. There's no real movement to it. She's not flying away or coming away. It's I would have expected more because I think this character inherently is really sharp looking and has a lot of potential. And then I don't think that's realized here, mostly by the artwork. I think the 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 text itself by Greenberger is is perfectly fine. Yeah, but the, I have, I feel like Barry Kitson just didn't really do a whole lot with it. And, and the sad part is, it's I mean it's expertly. Uh, Put on the page. I mean, like if you look at her proportions, there's nothing out of line. Everything looks like it should, you know, realistically sized and length and width and all that. So proportionally, it looks fine. It's just deadly dull, very, very stiff, which is a shame. So, yep. um, and by the way, the costume designed by Raphael Kayan. So it's great. Beautiful looking. costume. And he was beautiful. Costume. And he was pretty new on the comic scene at the time when he designed that too. So, um, and, and, and I was thinking about we could have a discussion of which costume was better, the original costume or this costume, but I think this costume wins hand down by everybody probably. I mean, blue and orange I think is a great color combination. Yeah, very uncommon, very uncommon. So a uh, little dis- – by the way, my, my copy is signed by Barry Kitson when I met him at um, uh, Baltimore Comic Con, which is great. No created by credit, which I thought was a little strange. I figured Jerry Conway would have got created by credit. Anyway, hmm. so the, the gist of Lorraine Riley, she's the daughter of a senator. She was um, – and the senator was blackmailed by Henry Hewitt, who eventually becomes the bad guy Tuck. Tokamak, um, and during this blackmailing, he ends up exposing her to a bunch of radiation, and she ends up getting superpowers and becomes Firehawk. Now, she's a reluctant hero at first, and then ended up falling into the role and really turned to love it. And one of the things is there's this big romance between her and Ronnie Raymond, which is very sweet, and she becomes kind of like his link to humanity when Firestorm starts going through changes, because if you, you would probably recall if you listen to this network, Firestorm becomes the blank slate version of Firestorm. Where uh, Firestorm has no memory, then eventually becomes the elemental Firestorm. So he really goes through these changes, and she still remains this sort of link. Uh, she ends up getting unfortunately caught up with the Sunderland Corporation, those guys from the Swamp Thing series, who eventually ends up Firestorm. She joins the Captains of Industry at that point. She ends up with the Institute for Metahuman Studies. She kind of bounces around a bit. But when the elemental Firestorm changed and Professor Stein took over and Ronnie Raymond came back, thankfully Firehawk and Ronnie Raymond, um, their their romance was able to uh, reignite and blossom, which was great. And years later, uh, her appearances became very sort of infrequent when Firestorm wasn't around. Like she was in uh, – she was in, in – um, identity crisis that you mentioned earlier. She's actually in there. She's the one hanging out with Ralph the whole time that Sue's putting together the birthday party. She's the one whose job is to distract him. So she's actually in that issue, which I is neat. no idea what you're talking about. I blotted every That's... moment of that out of my mind. Okay, fair enough. And she also at one point was dating Booster Gold, uh, things like that. So okay, I can see uh, that. Interestingly, Jerry Conway wanted to add her to the Justice League when he was doing Justice League Detroit. Oh, that would have been, been awesome. So good. I've always said I wanted her in the Justice League without Firestorm. I thought she would have been a fantastic addition to the team. So, yep. Yep. Now, her powers are a little different for Firestorm. She can generate heat, um, and she can fly, and she has this sort of instant costume change thing, which they had to sort of backpedal and explain why uh, Marv Wolfman messed up what he did with her in Crisis when he gave her a new costume. But anyway, um, that's an insight <laughs> to Firestorm fans. So at this point, uh, she hadn't really appeared anywhere since Firestorm number 100, which was their final issue. That was nine months ago, and really wouldn't do much else for a long, long time until Firestorm becomes a, a, a big piece again in DC Universe. The inset pictures are uh, like her class photo, like we talked about, just a picture of Lorraine, her with uh, Firestorm in her classic costume, and then her with the elemental Firestorm floating in space. 
And if you want more on Firehawk, I think there is a blog called Firestorm Fan and maybe a podcast called Aquaman and Firestorm. I'm not sure. You have to look it up, though. All right. Up next is another Legion entry. It is uh, – well, it depends how you say it. You could say Gim Alon. You might say Jim Allen. It all just depends on how you do it. But it's it's Colossal Boy from the Legion of Superheroes. Art by Dan Jurgens and Al Gordon. And I think they're a pretty nice combination. You've got Jim. He's just walking down the stairs. And he's in his science police outfit. And he looks pretty boss. He's pretty broad and strong. And in the background, you see the classic Dave Cockrum design costume of Colossal Boy sort of like floating as an image. And you see like the news people wanting to interview him. So um, what do you think? I like how he's got black and white hair. It looks nice. What do you think of this one? I didn't realize that those were the news people going to interview him, but I guess it makes sense. It looks a little, it looks like he's like one singular sensation. He's ready to he's ready to break into a musical number. Uh, no, I mean it's you know I mean I'm going to have the same comment for every friggin' listing here, except for Bouncing Boy. It's just they took a nice design which we see, and then they made it really dull looking. So well done. Do you always have to see something? You know, all those movies you watch, people aren't wearing superhero costumes. I'm just saying, not everyone has to, to wear anything. Su- not everyone has to wear superhero costumes to be interesting. It can be interesting yes, when they're in I, plain I, clothes. I, I totally understand why I would, why you wouldn't expect superheroes in a book called The Legion of Superheroes. <laughs> I get it. I know I'm totally off base here. You're totally right, Shag, and I'll shut up. I hate you so much. Um, you know I'm right. <laughs> I love, love, love the inset picture. Like that face. Now, his on, on the front side, his hair is black and white, but here it's brown. Anyway, it's a great sh- close-up shot of his face. I mean, that's a really nice shot. He's got a beard. Uh, on the bottom, you see him in various different costumes of his Colossal Boy. Uh, you see him with his wife, the, the Derlin. So the, the gist of Colossal Boy is um, he was on track to join the science police, and this meteor crashes, and he ends up getting powers because, you know, it happens. And uh, he doesn't end up going to the science police. He goes to science police. He goes to the Legion instead. Now, he's very, very unlucky in romance, and he had this huge crush on Shrinking Violet. And was pursuing her for a long time. She wasn't interested. Finally, one day, she it reciprocated, and she was kind to him. And they started dating, and they fell in love, and they got married very quickly. And it turns out that the version of Shrinking Violet that was actually being romantic with him wasn't her at all. It was a Durlin, a shapeshifter who had taken her place. So he had married a dirty, stinking alien. And uh, so he had to decide, um, did he love her? Because that's who he fell in love with. He didn't fall in love with a real shrinking violet. He fell in love with this Derlin lady. So they ended up staying together, and they stayed married, and she became a very vital part of the Legion, which is great. And um, now, they may sound familiar to you because a similar story happened with Human Torch and Alicia Masters. He fell in love with Alicia Masters and then found out she was a Skrull, and him and the Skrull stayed together. But I'm here to tell you folks that Colossal Boy and Shrinking Violet did that first. So that's a rip of Marvel, rip of the team. Those are the only Legion comics I've ever read. Really? Oh, wow. Okay. Fantastic. 303, 304, 305, 306, that whole run. Okay, the Legion of the Curse and everything, yeah. Yeah, yeah, those are great comics. Wow! Everyone, you heard it here. You heard it here. Um, So (laughs) uh, Colossal Boy gets injured uh, in fighting Starfinger, ends up going back to the science police, and now he's sort of a top cop, but he's always like on the edge kind of thing. He's always out there causing trouble. Now, one of the things that's not in the entry, and I guess it doesn't really matter because they don't address this, but his religion. You know, Colossal Boy was one of the first, uh, at least that I remember, openly Jewish characters in the DC comics. It, it openly sounds terrible, right? Openly. I know. I didn't mean to say it that way. But, you know, DC – so brave for admitting his, his Judaism. You know what I'm trying to say. Like D, DC, you, for decades, you just assumed everyone was a white Christian guy, you know. And so they started to try and introduce some diversity, and one of the things they did was they, they 
mentioned that Colossal Boy was Jewish. And again, it doesn't matter. It shouldn't be in the entry because no one else's religion is in there. But I just I always like that part about the character. I'm like, oh, okay, here's some diversity and here's a you know a representation of a different religion. So anyway, I just thought it was worth mentioning. Thanks for belittling a- me. There's a gr- I have no problem. There's a great uh, issue of uh, the Hembeck back when he used to do his independent comics for Fantago, and he had a whole had a whole run with Colossal Boy boom, talking about that. DC, his bosses at DC had told him that he was now Jewish, and he was bemoaning the fact that he said it didn't make any sense. That why would you turn uh, a superhero uh, who loses his yarmulke when he uses his powers into Jewish, and he literally <laughs> grows big, and then this little tiny yarmulke comes flying off. So. Oh my and gosh. that's that's how I knew that he was Jewish because through through Fred Hembeck. I thought it was because it was in like a, a treasury or something like that. Oh well, <laughs> where well, I learned about it was was through Fred Hembeck. Okay, fair enough. So it's written by Tom and Mary Beerbaum, as most of the Legion entries are. Um, where do you talk about Dan Jurgens, Al Gordon? Your border is red. His powers, he, he grows really, really big. He goes 25 feet tall. So um, Lawrence Fishburne would be jealous. And um, <clears throat> great character. I, I've always liked Colossal Boy. And as much as I love the 5YL stuff, yeah, that Dave Gibbons – or not Dave Gibbons. Um, Dave Cockrum design of the red and blue costume, oh, that is an awesome-looking costume. For yeah, Colossal it's wonderful. Boy. wonderful. Yep. All right, up next is Galorith. And on the on the front side here, you've got art by Val Semeckis, is how I always say it, and Jose Moran. Galorith in her Emma Frost wannabe outfit, basically, mm. which is just a, a sparkly silver uh, one-piece bathing suit, essentially, with giant thigh-high silver boots and silver gloves and a big cape and this big headpiece and everything. She's looking very, very sexy, and behind her is all these mystical arcane stuff. And uh, what, what do you think of this art here? It's it's nice. It's interesting in that Val Semeckis or Semeckis, I don't know how you yeah, say right. it. Of course, uh, he has a very scratchy uh, kind of almost not I'm gonna say realistic, but but not cartoony style. You can see a lot of his work. Um, uh, Ryan Daly talked about it from the Madame Xanadu comic that he <laughs> drew, and it's it's very kind of scratchy and and a little. And this you see none of that here. Like to me, he either. Like just did very loose pencils, or Jose Marzan is maybe a very heavy anchor. But to me, this is like it feels like eighty percent Marzan and maybe twenty percent Val Semeca. I see no Val Semecas in this at all. Well, didn't didn't Val go on to be like the primary Lobo artist forever? I want to say. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. This looks very different. Absolutely. Yep. It is kind of a fun entry. I mean, it's supposed to be sex, sex, sex is what they're trying to do with this entry. It doesn't come off quite that way to me. It's more a little more cartoonish, and I think it's fun. So I kind of mm-hmm. like it. Yeah. So the deal she with looks, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. She looks like she's in a futuristic uh, version of Barter's uh, yeah. store because there's all this bric-a-brac behind her. Yeah, you're not that wrong. You're not that wrong. So um, the entry here actually starts off really good. I'm going to read this because just the top part here because this sort of sums up the character. To understand Glorath of Baladar, you need to understand two things. One of them is very simple and one is very complex. The simple one is that she loves power more than life itself and will risk anything to get it. The complex one is that she's a central character in a series of bizarre distortions of the timeline in the 30th century. That sums up this character perfectly. She is hungry for power, and everything about her involves crazy time travel and retconning and changing history. All the stuff where they wipe Superboy out from the Legion of Superheroes history comes from her. 
It's all tied into her and Mordrew. And it's confusing as hell, and I'm not even going to try and unknot it, but uh, that's the gist of it. Deal with Glorith is, she, you know, super powerful magician, you know, uh, uh, contemporary power levels of Mordrew. Uh, she's super, super hot. She makes Dream Girl look kind of plain. Uh, she uses her sexiness to her, her advantage. And it's, everything involving her is very, very complex. I mean, it's really tied up with the Time Trapper and Mordrew, all the different timelines. They use some of it, as I said, to explain some of the post-crisis stuff. And uh, in the current iteration of Legion, with all the timeline changes, she's actually magically responsible for the creation of Legion. Not like by inspiring them, but she manipulated events which cr- allowed the Legion to be created because she wanted them to keep Mordrew busy. So he couldn't take over the universe because he's too busy fighting the Legion. It's kind of the, the timeline manipulation there. Written by Tom and Mary Beerbaum. Of course, the color is black for supervillain. They could have gone supernatural as well. All kinds of magical powers we talked about. And um, first appearance is Adventure Comics number 338 from November 1965. So she goes back a ways. And the little inset pictures, you see her. She's been, looks like, uh, blasted by some sort of magical spell and she's on the ground in a lot of pain. Then you see her, it looks like, attacking a bunch of people and then she's just floating, doing something. So, all right. Up next is Hugo Strange. So, all right. You're going to have to step in here in a little bit. Uh, Because I don't get this character. Paul Galassi uh, and Terry Austin did this image, and he is standing on the back of a love seat. And he's in a Batman costume, sort of stylized, because the Bat logo is really weird. He's, he's holding the cowl in his hands, and he looks very uh, manic with his big glasses and, and his weird sort of neck goatee thing, neck beard, whatever. And uh, what, do you, what do you think of the art representation here for Hugo Strange? I love Paul Galassi. He's a great artist. I wish that this iteration of Hugo Strange had not been the one that they did the listing for. Okay. Because uh, it talks about in the entry that at one point he, he poses as Batman, uh, which, of course, is what we're seeing here. Of course, on the inset, though, uh, it's the same image flipped, slightly yep. redrawn, so he's not wearing the Batman costume. Um, but I, I just – like his previous listing in the classic Huzu, he just has like a suit on, and I like that version a lot better. I like that the, just he's just sort of the regular guy. Um, Steve Englehart brought him back for that run with Marshall Rogers in Detective Comics. I think that Englehart was like the, basically the first guy to use him in 30 years or whatever I think, it was. I think you're right, yeah. Yeah, he was a Golden Age villain, basically forgotten, and then Englehart brought him back, and he really used him effectively. There's a, there's a sequence in one of their comics where – uh, the ghost of Hugo Strange is hitchhiking and strangles a guy, and it's just to me it was one of the most chilling images I've ever seen in a comic book. I had it when I was a kid; it was so scary. Uh, but here they don't get any of that. Although I will say, the second inset picture—what the hell is going has on? Got got to be one of the most transgressive images ever to be put in a DC comic because you've got Hugo Strange in his smoking jacket, and sitting next to him is a woman in lingerie with a bat hood on. I mean, that just has got all kinds of weird shit uh, there. Actually, so. I think it's not. Now I look at it, look at her arm. I think that's a mannequin, dude. I, it is, right, yes, it is a mannequin. Right, because you can see the, the hinge on the, on the that elbow. That is but, so messed up. And and not only not only does the, the mannequin have a bat hood on, but there's no mouth on it. So it's like a gimp kind of bat. Oh. Like it's, it's just... Uh, very, very, very strange, and they so they really went pretty, pretty weird with with uh, no pun intended. Hugo. <laughs> well, the the gist of him is he's this insane psychiatrist who is a profiler for the I guess the cops or in general, and or and so he's so successful at profiling, he some stumbles upon Batman's secret identity, he profiles Batman, and figures it out. He figures out who Batman is, and he hates Batman, uh, and and because Hugo Strange himself is shunned for his peculiar appearance and his demeanor, and he's jealous because he can understand. Batman's mind, but he can't be 
be like Batman physically. So I guess that's where some of the wearing the costume stuff comes from. Um, such a weird entry. So weird. So the, uh, it's written by Mark Wade. The, the border's black, obviously, for villain. I'm glad you mentioned the inset picture. Yeah, it's not even redrawn. It's just recolored. It is the exact same flipped image is what it is. Um, and disappointing, again, that they didn't get that image done. Anyway, he just appeared three months ago in a Legends of the Dark Knight storyline called Prey. So he's fairly recent to the uh, DC Universe appearances. And uh, if you want more on Hugo Strange, you can check out uh, our Batman Nightcast here on our network. You can check out the Overlooked Dark Knight podcast. Uh, he's appeared on shows like Gotham. He's been in Batman the Animated Series. He's been in a lot more. He's been in some of the Arkham video games. So he's he's broken through quite a bit, but he's not like one of the giant names in the Batman. So, you know? so he's, he's yep. bigger than Scarface, but... <laughs> I, well, <laughs> I think he is. But, uh, well, maybe he's not. I don't know. Hmm. I don't get this guy. I, I must have read a comic or two with him. I have no recollection of any of them. So I do not get this guy at all. Hmm. Uh, read, read the Englehart, Marshall Rogers, Terry Austin issues of Detective Comics, and you'll you'll be like, oh, well, he's really cool. Okay. All right. I, I may do that. So Up next, oh, my gosh, the MVP of the issue, in my opinion. I don't know if you agree or not, but uh, Calabac by Mike Parabek and uh, Willie Blyberg. Oh, my gosh, this image is amazing. It is like – I thought Art Adams did this at first. It's so good. Calabac is running at the camera. He's got sort of, you know, his gorilla monster face, ogre face, and he's got his, his was a beta club or whatever it's in his hand. And his, his outfit is just very traditional Kirby-esque, but it's so action oriented. He's exploding out of the page and he's framed. He's framed in this amazing sort of wooden, uh, totem pole sort of uh, border. It's got all these different heads from the new gods. It's got his name carved out of wood. Uh, it is just amazing line work. I don't know. I, I hope you like it as much as I do. I love this one. Has there ever been a bad Mike Powerback drawing? <laughs> there, there had to have been one, right? I'm sure <laughs> at some something. point. But I mean, this this is beyond just a good Mike Powerback drawing. This is something a step above, I think. This this uh, we we joke about this in other uh, many other who's who that we've done. This is like the the key art that you use to sell like the Calabac cartoon or the Calabac action figure Something. or whatever. It's just it's gorgeous. He takes a he takes like a D level character who is just a big brute and makes it look just phenomenal. Yeah, you're just like this the amount of extra effort he put into drawing all those faces and giving it some sort of stylistic touch. I mean, he could have just had disembodied heads. My favorite, disembodied heads. But <laughs> instead instead he puts it in this literally a frame. It's it's I looked at it and I was like who drew this? And then I flip it over and I was like, "Oh, of course." <laughs> you know, of course. Of course it was Mike Parapek. Oh, it's gorgeous. I absolutely love every bit. And, and the thing about it, the character, technically at this point, is dead. Uh, it, they didn't give him the deceased stamp, but at this point the character's dead. So it's just interesting that they went to all this effort. So uh, Calabac created by Jack Kirby, of course. And uh, the inset pictures, it shows him strangling to side. You see him fighting um, – oh, is that um, – Oh, that's, is that the terrible Turpin he's fighting probably? And then you see Darkseid <laughs> frying him. You know, you know who Turpin's supposed to be basically, yes, right? Yes, Jack Kirby. Exactly. Course. So I think that's him fighting Jack Kirby is kind of what that's supposed to be. Oh, I love this. So um, there's you know, like a lot of the other New Gods entries, there's not a lot of information. There's a lot of white space where they didn't fill it in, which is interesting. The gist of Calvac, though, of course, is he's the son of Darkseid. Uh, his mother is the only woman that Darkseid ever truly loved, which is interesting. And, of course, uh, Calvac hates Orion, who's his half-brother. 
because you know uh, Orion is sort of like the favorite of Darkseid versus Kalibak. It's sort of like what's going on right now with Rob and his, and David Ace Gutierrez. I don't know if you know, uh, Rob's father has adopted David Ace Gutierrez to the family, and um, they're struggling as to who's the favorite brother right now. And I think Rob's you know kind of like Kalibak in this one. He's mad. Um, not, not really a struggle. <laughs> uh, and Kalibak is one of the – they mentioned he's one of the strongest in the galaxy, which is pretty darn impressive. So his border is black, of course, written by Mark Wade, and we talked about the art already. Uh, first appearance goes back to The New Gods, the first series, in number one back in 1971. And New Gods was on issue number 25 at this point. And again, Kalibak was dead. Now, other than a couple of appearances here and there, he doesn't, he's not going to come back around for quite a while. And if you want more on Kalibak, you could always check out the Kirby cast. Um, you could pull out your superpowers cartoons and watch some of those because he's all over that. Or uh, check out the Justice League cartoon or the Super Animated Series cartoon. Kalibak's in there. I think uh, Michael Dorn voices him, doesn't he? I have no idea. That's cool. Okay. All right, up next is Kilowog. Oh, this is fantastic. Now, this is during an era where Kilowog didn't have any powers. He didn't have a power ring, so he's just uh, a guy with his brain. So at this point, he was serving as the chief and mechanic for the Justice League International folks. So here he is fixing a whole bunch of machines, and he's in his overalls. This is from the JLI era. And the art here is by Larry Stroman and Scott Hanna, and I think it just looks fantastic. What do you think of this one? Who is Larry Stroman? I'm completely unfamiliar with him. Oh, gosh. Um... Oh, uh, I want to say he went on to be part of the Milestone line, I think. Um, okay. I could be wrong on that. I could be wrong. But that's that's where it, I knew his stuff in the 90s. Oh, if you hadn't put me on the spot. Um, I've seen Strowman a lot, and I, I want to say that's where I know him from. Okay. It's a great drawing. I think it's like the the, the pose. I mean like the, the situation of him just repairing something kind of boring, but the drawing itself is terrific. Yeah, it's absolutely great, and you're supposed to vamp just a little bit more so I can look up Larry Stroman. I'm sorry. Okay. Well, the logo is pretty dull. It's just a typeface. Uh, hasn't Kilowog – Kilowog has, like, managed to be – because he was in the movie and he was in the cartoon series. Like, yeah. He's a late he's a late period Green Lantern, and yet he has really popped in terms of, like, his overall pop culture, you know, uh, f- fame. Uh, I mean, first he mentions here, first appeared in – Green Lantern Corps number 201, and that was when the book converted from Green Lantern to Green Lantern Corps, and so he's become, again, kind of like a thing. It's kind of yeah. amazing. He really did become a big, big name. Uh, you mentioned the animated series, the movie, uh, he, you know, Justice League International. He's, he's been in a lot of places. Now, okay, Larry Stroman. Here's the – I'm wrong. It's not um, Milestone Comics. I'm so sorry. But he – where I – it's X Factor. That's where I knew him from. He drew uh. the Peter David issue. Remember those amazing Peter David issues of X Factor? Uh, no. Larry Stroman – well, maybe you didn't read them. I don't know. But um, – they're great. And Larry Stroman was the main artist on that. And he goes on to do a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, he did a bunch of X-Men stuff and Punisher stuff and Dark Horse stuff. He does the Tribe for Image Comics. He had a really, really uh, big, big career. And it looks like he um, has continued to work up through at least 2009, according to this entry I'm looking at here. So, uh, yeah, great, fantastic artist. Oh, I guess he's – and he's still drawing. I apologize. So, um, Good for him. So Kilowog, right? So he's this. He's basically designed to look like a warthog, folks. Okay. So if you hadn't figured that out, yes, he's supposed to look like a warthog. The name Kilowog, it's all kind of there. And uh, he's from the Bolovax uh, people, who were this. They had this sort of this shared communal mind. And he was this brilliant genetic scientist, which is not what you really think of when you think of Kilowog. But anyway, apparently he was, and had really, uh, really high willpower. So he became a Green Lantern. The crisis comes along, ends up wiping out his people. Sinestro then came along and made sure that they stayed dead when their ghosts almost came back. It was very sad. He comes to Earth and he goes to the Soviet Union because he likes their philosophy. He thinks the uh, the whole communism idea is kind of similar to his race. 
and he helps them perfect the Rocket Red Brigade. So he's actually responsible for the Rocket Reds. Later on, he helps the New Guardians because, you know, everyone goes through a bad spell in their lives. And then later on, he ends up as the mechanic for the Justice League International, and that's where he is at this point. Again, he doesn't have the powers. And he's not even the drill sergeant sort of character he is that we all know him as, as you know, the really aggressive rah, 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 kind of guy from the Green Lantern stuff. That actually comes a little, that's a retcon that comes a little bit later. So at this point, he's, he's more like a, I don't want to say gentle giant, but he's really, really nice. I mean, he can still say poozer and all that, but with, with the rest of them. But uh, yeah, he wasn't the drill sergeant yet. Now, this piece is written by Kevin Dooley, who was, of course, editing all the JLI books. Uh, and he's, his border is red. And at this point, um, Justice League America number 50 and Justice League Europe number 25 were both on the shelves. And he was appearing in a lot of the Justice League books, whether it was in the background or as a main character. So if you want more on him, you should check out the uh, Lantern cast or uh, in future episodes of Justice League International. He'll be, he'll be featured in that as well. Or if you really need to, go rent the Green Lantern movie. So. Yeah. Or, uh, or, or, um, Zoom would be thrilled if you'd watch the Green Lantern animated series instead. So, all right, up next is the Legion of Superheroes entry. Okay, so five years later has happened, and that's where we are. You have got this image of the whole team together. It is 15 different characters, and Rob would probably describe them as all looking boring and drab, but. It is drawn by Keith Kiffin and Al Gordon. Uh, it's all the and each character has kind of got a little bit of personality shining through. I like this image. What what do you think of it, Rob? Uh, you know that picture I sent you? Which one? Of me? Yes, looking bored. That, that's okay. There we go. I literally have my hand on my face right now. Okay. All right. <laughs> so here's the deal. Here's why the five YL era is so drab, Rob. This is what we've been, we've been building to talking about. So you know the Legion of Superheroes. Bright, shiny future, lots of costumes, people flying everywhere. The the universe is great, right? Well, in between this five-year era where the series ended and then the series picks up, they say this five-year gap. Basically, the economy of the, the United Planets collapses. Which is a you know a very real thing that happens to economies. As the economy collapses, members of the Legion leave the team to go help their own homeworld, which is struggling. Planets are falling. People don't have money to feed their children. It's, it's this horrible, horrible, you know, dystopian setting. The uh, the EarthGov, which again is the government of Earth, they actually turn on the Legion. So eventually, the Legion disbands, which makes me wonder if Aquaman is still around in the 30th century. But anyway, um, and so five years later, these. These teenage, these people who were teenagers and have grown up to be adults in a horrible setting, you know, basically third world country, but more like third world galaxy, um, they're all trying to rebuild their lives. And that's why everyone looks so drab. No one wears the superhero costumes anymore. People are poor. People can barely feed themselves. That's the kind of society. That's why things look this way, Rob. So Chameleon Boy, Reap Daggle, decides he wants to bring the Legion back together because he's inherited his father's company, so he's super rich. He gets Cosmic Boy, Rock Crin, who no longer has his powers, and Rock becomes the field leader of the team while uh, Reap sort of is the uh, Chameleon Boy, is like the organization and the money guy. Then you get Element Lad, Jana Ra. You get Brainiac 5, which is Quirrell Dox. You get Timberwolf, who is Bryn Londo, or at this point Furball, which is that giant furball creature. Uh, only Ultra Boy knows about that furball is actually Timberwolf. You get Lightning Lass, which is Elia Rands. You get Shrieking Violet, or Vi. Matter Eater Lad, which is Tenzel Kem. Ultra Boy, Jonah. Uh, you get Bounty, who's this strange, mysterious bounty hunter who you find out later on is Dawnstar, who has had her wings clipped, which was horrible. You get Celeste, who ends up going on to becoming a Green Lantern. You get Laurel Gand, which is the analog for Supergirl. You get Kono, who's a new character, and White Witch, who's Missa. I don't know. I always say Misa, Missa. I don't know. You get Kent Shakespeare, Rob's new favorite character. <laughs> and, um... 
So I, I love this book. The first 25 issues, first maybe even 40 issues are just spectacular in this book. It absolutely is. It's great, and I, I wish you could find it in your heart to love it, Robin. I'm sorry you don't. So after, after five years, the Legion should have gone back in time, retrieved the Infinity Stones, oh my God. and undid <laughs> everything. That would have been such a simple solution. See, uh, Endgame was all about Legion of Superheroes. That was <laughs> Ken, Kevin Feige's love letter to the 5YL. So clearly it was at five years later. So anyway, written by Tom and Mary Beerbaum, of course, uh, first uh, appearance is adventure comics, two forty seven, which is April, 1958. The Legion goes all the way back to 1958. Hard to believe that they don't have a book on the stands right now. And yet they've been around that long. So it's going to happen soon because they're, they're all over doomsday clock and Jeff Johns is building to it. So we'll see. Uh, at this point, Legion of superheroes, uh, number 18 was on the shelves. So, all right. Up next is Lorno, uh, or, or um, her Lorno Durgo. She is the wife of Bouncing Boy. So we've talked a lot about her already, so we're not going to get uh, talk too much. But uh, the art is by Brandon Peterson and Al Gordon, and you see her walking towards the camera. She's very sad. She's It's snowing. It's cold. She's bundled up, so she's very cold, and she's looking down very, very sad. And in the background, you see the... Memorial Garden for the Legion, which is these statues of fallen Legionnaires. And there are two statues of her. One is Triplicate Girl, one is Duo Damsel, and there she is there by herself because now you know, two of her bodies have died. The, the joke was it was Triplicate Girl, uh, Duo Damsel, and Mono Maid, which is terrible. But <laughs> I don't think that was ever actually in the book. That might have just been fans. Either way, uh, I think this art piece speaks volumes, her, how sad she is. What do you think of it? Yeah, it's a nice piece. It's uh, situational, which is cool. Um, and this may be a deep cut. Maybe you can't answer it. Like I know because I have read enough Legion comics that I know that they're like they're I've seen that Furrow Lad statue. Mm-hmm. Are there actual statues of of her and her other identities as if they are dead? Is that a real thing or is that just Brandon Peterson's sort of? It's a good question. Um, given how dedicated the Legion fans were to accuracy, I would imagine it's probably accurate. I don't know. I don't know. I've seen okay. obviously I've seen the statues, the the garden or graveyard, or whatever it is, you know, the the a, a lot. But uh, I can't vouch for it now. Because if they did, that's weird. Because, you know, she's like, I'm not dead. I just lost my powers. Like, like I'm not dead. What no, they died. I mean, no, they, they make it very clear that parts of her died. I mean, she. Okay. Yeah, right. it, it's not just a, oops, I, I can't stick to walls anymore. It's, what, you know, a third of me died. You know, it's kind of, it's really, it's definitely deaths. So the, the first one was killed by uh, a giant robot crew, basically Ultron, um, but called Computo. Uh, Brainiac 5 designed this giant robot who turned evil and it killed one of her uh, selves. The other one um, died fighting Glorith. So it's very, very sad. Um, the interesting things about her is, again, we've talked about wife of Bouncing Boy. She was the first new recruit of the Legion after the Founders, so that's pretty cool to say that she was that. She had this unrequited lo- crush on Largand, or Monel Valor, whatever you want to call him. And I'm pretty sure in Pre-Crisis that was actually a crush on Superboy. But anyway, um, the marriage between her and Bouncing Boy is really the, the big shining light on a lot of these tragedies the thing that, that around her. So, And now she is a trainer for the UP militia. And so um, – so you asked earlier, did did they have an identity crisis with their marriage? Well, not necessarily, but they did. She did lose two of herself, which is incredibly sad. All right, I actually do have a question about this. Okay, I, I, as much as I'm trying to get through these Legion list things as fast as possible, I do have a question. Yeah, because it mentions that her du- he mentions the duplicates, and it says they are three identical duplicates, mm-hmm. right? Okay, mm-hmm. so and it doesn't get into it past that in this listing. When she becomes Triplicate Girl, are they three of the same exact person? 
or are they slightly different? Like, do the other two have different personalities than her? Are they, or and is and is she operating them all like from one brain? Like, hey, you go here and I go there. Are they, or are they really three kind of different people? I can't answer that authoritatively, but I will do my best. Um, and, I, and I always get nervous because I'm not the Legion expert. We have lots of fans or listeners, uh, fans of the Legion who are. Um, so my understanding, when she first came about, she would have been three independent people. Uh, all had the same personality type. though. They're basically three carbon copies of each other. Then as they did various stories, especially when they started doing the reboots, they definitely changed things. Like at one point, uh, she had this costume which was split. Like one half was one color, one color one, – one was – I don't remember. I think it was one was like pink or orange and one was teal or something like that. And when she split – one of the bodies would be wearing orange. One body would be wearing right. teal. Right. And I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that at some point they did have different personalities too. And one iteration, one reboot of the Legion where each one has slightly different personalities. So I think initially they were carbon copies and then afterwards they were more distinct individuals. Okay. All right. Fair enough. I, just, I was just curious. Yep. And I could be wrong about that. I can't promise that, but that's my memory. All right. So first appearance, Action Comics 276, May 1961. I feel like I keep saying that same issue over and over uh, as we go through this. But anyway, Border is red, and we've already talked about all the powers and all that stuff. So uh, written by, surprisingly, Tommy Mary Beerbaum. Okay. Up next is – I say Missa. I don't know if I'm saying that right. It's M-Y-S-A. This is The White Witch and art by, oh my gosh, Esteban Moroto. This is fantastic, and this continues the streak of amazing White Witch Who's Who entries because the previous ones were done by Mike DiCarlo and Larry Malstadt, which was incredibly sexy. Then another entry was done by Jose Villaruba and Carl Kiesel, which is also amazingly sexy. And now we've got Esteban Moroto. I mean when you're talking about sexy women, that's who you get to draw them. Uh, she is lounging around in this – it's supposed to be like a mystical costume, but it really looks like lingerie. And she's like resting her hand on various skull statues and stuff. She's surrounded by spell books. She's sitting on skulls. There's cats and, and demons and stuff all around her. This is a stunning uh, entry. I love it. What do you think? Yeah, it's a great piece. I like the uh, the, the face in the sky, mm-hmm. uh, the little eyes or whatever. Yeah, it's great. Look, it reminds me a lot of uh, the Atlantis Chronicles because, of course, he drew that. Yes, exactly. Uh, but, yeah, it's great. And it's funny. This is another one where the inset on the inside is yep. the same drawing. They just drained all the color out of it. Right. They drained the color out to make her look like the White Witch. And I think they were thinking, well, that would be clever. No one will notice. Yeah, sorry, guys. We noticed. <laughs> there's, there's no way a couple of nerds are going to be analyzing this many years from now. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, so, um, tragic character, really tragic. She has had a lot of problems in her life. She's the sister of Dream Girl and eventually becomes the wife of Mordru, which yeah, can't be a good thing. Ooh, very, very hard life. She, when she was born into this culture of people who can see into the future, that's sort of like the, the, the people of their race have this power. She didn't have it. So she goes to the sorcerer's world to seek them out and study magic so she can have some sort of ability. She ends up getting, because she's so successful, somebody like uh, doesn't like what she's doing, so they transform her into the hag, which is looks like the oh. stepmother in, uh, what is it, uh, Snow White when she was the hag. Um, she, but she eventually shakes that off. She gets, she's very, very, very powerful. She goes on to have sort of a, I'm going to call it a platonic romance, is the best way to describe it, with Block from the Legion of Superheroes, which is very sweet. <laughs> Is there any other kind, really? Well, I guess so. Uh, she ends up married to Mordru. She is psychically battered by him. It's just emotionally battered, physically. It's just horrible. He wrecks her. She ends up with all these self-esteem problems. And at this point in Legion history, she's very – she's trying to rebuild her life, but she's really, really struggling. She has a lot of emotional problems. Her powers are at a low ebb right now. 
it was a real struggle for her at this point. Um, the Border is Red, of course, written by Tom Mary Beerbaum, of course. First appearance, Adventure Comics number 350, which is November 1966. And uh, so the, the bottom pictures are you see her uh, sort of being transformed into the hag. You see her in her full white witch outfit where she's, uh, she's just, her skin is all white. And then you see her fighting, I think that's maybe more Drew. I'm not really sure. And she's in kind of a sexy – again, all, all of her outfits are very, very sexy with white sort of stylization, but – yeah, uh, you can it, see, you can you can tell the entry was written by the beer bombs by the fact that they go right up into practically the very last space yeah. on the page. <laughs> they they really got their money's worth of these listings. They never miss an opportunity there. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Um, by the way, I should mention Legion, other places to find Legion superhero characters, and I, and I, I've been sort of not mentioned because I don't want to just keep doing it twelve times. But there are other other media places you can find more Legion of Superheroes, such as the Smallville TV show. Legion appeared there. The Supergirl TV show quite a bit. Uh, they had their own cartoon. Again, Legion of Superbloggers. Lots of places and other media for you to find stuff about the Legion. One final thing. I don't know if you mentioned this in, in talking about all the things you see on this listing, but man, do I love Esteban Barono's insane cat sitting <laughs> yes. there on the ground. It's the, it's the most nasty, demonic-looking, junkyardy cat I've ever seen. It's great. It looks, uh, makes a um, ugly cat, or what was a... Um... Grumpy cat. Grumpy cat. Yes. Make, right, makes grumpy cat look passive. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Up next is Rhea Jones from the Doom Patrol by Richard Case. This is a, a great picture. It's, it's got the Doom, Doom Patrol sort of cover treatment where the vertical white space where they got her name. And then she's uh, she's basically naked, but she's got uh, her hands covering her breast. Her, she has no face at all. Her, across her chest is this green eyeball. And her hair is super crazy long, like Starfire kind of length, red, just flowing off the page. Her hair is so long. And she's standing there, and all these things are exploding out of her hand, all these swirls and images and patterns and crazy colors. It is – it's sort of crazy and nonsensical. Like it doesn't make sense what's happening, but it's beautiful. I really like it. It's a nice piece by Richard Case. What do you think? I, am I wrong in assuming that this is – that, that uh, Richard Case based this image on Venus on the half shell? Oh, it could very well have. Like. Could very well have. It's got the the hand over the breast mm-hmm. and the, the way the red hair is swinging around. I always assumed that that's what it was. Uh, yeah, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, uh, yeah, episodes of the show. I love the consistent design element. Mm-hmm. I think that's just great. I would imagine that this is the kind of thing that really pays off if you organize your listings by team. Right. Because then they're all together and it looks super cool. And yeah, all the detail, all the craziness. I mean, again, I know nothing about this character. Never read any of these issues. I'll, I mean, I read this one because this is actually earlier on. But uh, but yeah, I mean, boy, it's a beautiful image and there's 40 bajillion things going on. You could see this painted on the side of a van in like 1978 <laughs> or something. So it took Richard Case a long time to draw, no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, you, you kind of hinted at it. The character's actually been around for a little while. She started off in the Paul Kupperberg, Steve right, Lytle, right, Doom Patrol, right. as Lodestone. So what happens here is uh, when she was very young, she lost her mother. So she goes to seek out her father, who's in this uh, Arctic military base doing this experimental thing with an electromagnetic generator, as one is to do. And she ends up getting caught in it and gets all these magnetic powers. And she joins the Doom Patrol. Well, then Grant Morrison comes along and makes her very Grant Morrison-y. And that should be a verb, Morrison-y, or adjective, I guess. And uh, the gene bomb goes off from invasion. She ends up in a coma. And when she comes out, she's essentially – and I may not have this exactly right, guys, but keep in mind, I'm trying to interpret Morrison here. She becomes like basically the living embodiment of Earth's magnetic field. And through the story with Doom Patrol, she ends up out – in space, uh, getting caught up in this war between the geomancers and the animeth. I can't say that. I, I knew I was going to stumble over this. Animeth. Uh, 
anathematicians. There we go. I got it right. And uh, she ends up staying out there and sort of exploring space. It's very trippy. It's very weird. I read the issues. I don't remember any of it. So I'm reading this entry, and it's like reading it for the first time. It's so strange. In the inset picture, it shows her battling um, some sort of alien with her powers, and she's there with Robot Man. And then you see, I guess, all the powers sort of going crazy out of her body there in the other inset picture. Uh, currently, Doom Patrol is on issue number 44 right now. She left the Doom Patrol three months before this when she went off into space. So she's only been gone for a short while. And if you want more on the Doom Patrol, you can check out, of course, the Waiting for Doom podcast with our buddies Paul and Mike. Uh, great show. And she has actually appeared in the Doom Patrol TV show. Um, now, I haven't watched it myself. I've only watched the first episode. I still need to catch up on the rest of it. But she did make an appearance in an episode. That's amazing. So I know. It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. All right. Up next is another Legion entry. This is Roxas. And, oh, wow, this thing is a trip. And this character freaks me out, Rob. So it is, it's this bad guy sitting on a basically a tower of skulls that just goes off into the distance. And he's hugging himself as he looks in the mirror. One half of his face is just shredded. It looks like a two-face, really. And he's looking in the mirror at his horrific side of his face. And he's glancing at us. He's surrounded by spaceships and stuff. The Acme poison gas dispenser. Uh, really kind of trippy. It's done by Michael T. Gilbert. What do you – this has got to be a weird one for you because the character's probably completely unknown. What do you think of this? Yeah, I have no idea what this is about, but I love the drawing. I'm a big fan of Michael T. Gilbert as an artist. He used to do a comic book for Eclipse called Mr. Monster that oh, I okay. absolutely love. I, I bought every single issue of Mr. Monster. I love that series. So yeah, I know nothing about this character, but I'm always happy that they get somebody different to do it. And I really like the inset drawings. Those are great. You yep. see him there without all the scarred face and there's bouncing boy. And I guess that's element lad yep. in the background chasing yes. after him. Uh, yeah. I'm imagining Harvey Dent is like, yeah, that's a good looking dude, you know? So uh, <laughs> I, no, I like it. I, I, again, I know nothing of the character, but I dig the entry a lot. This guy is the creepiest character in the Legion Mythos for me, personally, from his 5YL stuff. He started off as this sort of cutthroat space pirate. He ends up going to this planet, holding a hostage. Uh, it was Element Lad's planet, his home planet, and he ends up slaughtering the entire race. He kills every single person in this world. They're all pacifists. He kills everyone except Element, Element Lad's like the last one left of his race. And uh, he ends up getting caught by the Legion. Later on, he escapes, and he's driven insane by the ghosts of the people he's killed. It's very creepy. Then it gets even weirder. Once you get to the five-year-later era, he's hired by the Dominators. They hire this psych psychotic guy basically to hunt down and kill the former Legionnaires. And he does, in fact, kill Block, uh, who I loved. I was so crushed when he killed Block. And eventually he, uh, the Legion catch up with him and arrest him, and uh, they're going to execute him. For his crimes, an element lad, the one whose whole entire species was killed, he's the one that talks them down from executing Roxas, which is a really, really powerful moment in the Legion. And I know Ange is, is already writing comments about how important it is to him, that moment. Um, the guy has no powers, but Rob, this guy cared, scared the crap out of me. When I would read my Legion comics and he was in it, I'd have to put it down and like walk, walk away from it slowly. I was so scared of this guy. <laughs> it really terrified me. In fact, a buddy of mine was so scared of this guy, he named his, he named his snake Roxas. Um, wow. just, I mean, the guy oh, freaks you out. He really, really freaks you out. So, um, of course, written by Tom Mary Beerbaum and Borders Black. And as I said, he doesn't have any powers. He's just freaky. So, all right. Up next, a little more traditional Shadow Thief. So it is uh, your, your guy who's a living shadow and he likes to steal things. Hence the name Shadow Thief. And he's stepping through a wall. And uh, in the background, you see what appears to be probably Thanagar, I would assume. So uh, nice image uh, drawn by... Uh, Gary, Co wow, Co I guess is how you say that. 
he was inking Hawkworld at the time. That's why he got this gig. So it's a, it's a nice image. It looks very classic, I would say. Greatest character design in the history of comics. Just because it's so simple? Yeah. yeah. I, I, from from an artist's perspective, if, I mean, if, like, if I was a writer-artist on Hawkman, I'd be like, uh, you know what? Every issue, Shadow Thief. Every <laughs> single one. <laughs> I'm killing Bith off pa- page two, and then yeah. Shadow Thief becomes the Joker of my particular book, just because I just want to draw this that every issue. That is hilarious. Issue. And I love you know, his, his silhouette's very you know recognizable with the goatee and everything. It's really nice. So um, <laughs> yeah, he's great. The deal with Shadow Thief, basically, he's at least in the post crisis era, he is this guy who who has all this ninja training. They specifically say ninja training, and he operates as an industrial spy and assassin. And he wears this jet black non reflective bodysuit. Well, he ends up getting hired by your favorite character, Bith, that you just mentioned, mm-hmm. and Bith gives him a Thanagarian shadow field generator, which turns him into a living shadow. It's a lot of complicated explanations to basically say this guy's a living shadow and he's a bad guy. Um, you know, and this is the revised version because it yes. lists two different uh, first appearances. Oh, good point. Yeah, Brave and the Bold number thirty-six, which is the historical one. Now, current one, Hawkworld number five from October nineteen ninety, so a lot more recent. <laughs> and uh, Hawkworld was on issue number eleven right now, and Shadow Thief had was in it the book just about six months before this. So, and of course, uh, if you're interested in Hawkman, you should check out the Hawkman Companion from Tomorrow's. Our buddy Doug Zawisha wrote that, and our buddy um, uh, uh, Jack Luke Jacanetti has the Being Carter Hall blog. So, great stuff. All right, up next is Tenzel Kem, which, by the way, I should have mentioned that you guys already probably know this, but the 5YL stuff, one of the neat things about the book is everyone goes by their real name rather than their superhero name. And so when you're reading it, they don't say, hey, Matter Reader Lad. They say, hey, Tenzel, which is great. I love that because that's how people – I don't call Rob, you know, hey, bald Aquaman guy. I call him Rob. So <laughs> Anyway. Uh, <laughs> boy, that was a – that was a dead end there. Okay. Yeah, I was really – yeah, anyway, I found it funny. Uh, anyway, it's uh, <laughs> by Keith Giffen and Al Gordon, and it is a close-up of him, again, in sort of the you know crazy outfits that he puts people in, like you said, right off the, the, the ship of the HMS Bounty. And he is taking a bite of what he looks like he's made a circuit board sandwich, basically. It's all this metal components, and he's eating it, and he's chewing, and he's like winking one of his eyes, which is great. And on the inset, it's the exact same picture, except they put a star field behind him. And uh, put some schmutz on his face. So <laughs> it, it was not until I re- was reviewing this issue for this podcast that I realized that that was a circuit board sandwich. I oh, just really? Never really thought about it. it. Just looked like a pile of junk. And yep. then I realized, no, he's using these two kind of I don't know for whatever they are those large you know square things as the bread of the sandwich. Yep. That's I like that. That's that's funny. Yeah, super fun. And the whole idea is basically on their planet. Which did you catch the name of the planet? Uh, yeah, it's abysmal, yes, of Pepto. I yes, think exactly, Pepto. which is fantastic. Um, they have this poisonous landscape. Everything there will kill you. And so the, the society evolved to the point where they could eat anything to survive, literally anything. And so that's why he's able to eat anything, which is very clever. Anyway, uh, he, he really is the, the funny guy in the book. He, he's, he's used for laughs. Uh, he was a huge morale booster in the Legion. And interestingly enough, in his story, because it's funny, uh, on the planet Bismol, he ends up getting tied up in their politics. They make him become uh, like a senator or something like that, and he doesn't want to, but he goes and does it. He decides, you know what? I, I'm just gonna I'm gonna do the opposite of what senators do. I'm gonna tell the truth. I'm gonna run around with a bunch of loose women very publicly, and I'm not gonna take anything seriously. Well, his popularity soared. People loved him for his behavior. Uh, the politicians didn't, but the people absolutely loved him. So he then ends up surrounding himself with very very competent people, and he ends up becoming like the most powerful and effective politician in Bismol, <laughs> which is crazy. And at this point. He's back with the Legion now, and uh, again, the borders, you know, a red, of course, written by Tom and Mary Beerbaum. And I love in the inset picture his 
his icon. Like, you know, if you had a, you know, a superhero insignia, it's this tooth. You know, it's a, it's a tooth, which is absolutely great with, a, you know, all these little patterns behind checkerboard patterns and stuff behind it. And you see him uh, in his, uh, his political outfit. And then you see a border with uh, around it, like a, a Ghostbusters, you know, no smoking sign around a chicken leg. I guess maybe he doesn't eat meat. I didn't see this in here, but maybe that's one of his things. He doesn't eat meat. I'm not too sure. Good for him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyway, super fun. All right. Uh, up next is – oh, I love this one. Deathstroke the Terminator drawn by Steve Irwin and Willie Blyberg. And uh, it's, it's Deathstroke on the cover. He's got his gun. He's pulling out his sword. He's blasting somebody. In the background, you see uh, faces, uh, disembodied heads, which Rob loves, of Deathstroke and Wintergreen and Adelaide and Ravager and uh, Jericho. And then behind him on the other side is just a – Oh, I guess that's probably Terra. Terra, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like a silhouette of Terra, isn't it? Uh, as she's pulling rocks around. So I, I, it's it's done by the Crocodile Hunter, Steve Irwin. I love this drawing. What do you think of it? Yeah, it's great. I mean, the, the Terminator is one of the great character designs, of course, courtesy of George Perez. Uh, I'm he's his character reminds me so much of of Taskmaster from okay. Marvel because it's, it's it's the boots. It's, it's well, it's the same color scheme too. Ooh. He's orange and blue. Uh, Taskmaster has more white, uh, and and also they are both tricked out like you wouldn't believe. I mean, they got like forty seven accessories. If True. these were Mego dolls, you would lose everything really quickly. <laughs> and I I think that Taskmaster was designed by George Perez as well. <gasps> he, I, th- I think he first appeared back when Perez was drawing Avengers. So I wonder if that's if this is Perez stealing from himself to do uh, because they just they th- they look very similar. I mean, they both look awesome, but they just uh, to me I can't help but. Look at him and not think of Taskmaster. That's interesting. So that would make Taskfa- Taskmaster um, Deadpool's grandfather, basically, because I guess so. uh, if Deathstroke is uh, to you know a copy of uh, Taskmaster, without a doubt, if you didn't know this, Deadpool is a copy of Deathstroke, very intentionally. Uh, you know, basically, the, the personality, the, the some of the costume elements, the Wade Wilson versus Slade Wilson. I mean, they weren't even trying to hide the fact that it was a Deathstroke sort of character. And Ted so, Testmaster uh, is going to be in one of the movies, by the way. No way, really? He's going to be in the Black <sighs> Widow prequel. Yes. Oh, that's very cool. Okay. Uh, by well, the way, Terminator I just looked gets... it up. I'm sorry to interrupt. Just minute, one last thing: Testmaster created by David Michelini and George Perez. Okay. Interesting. I'm going to have – now, I, I'm not going to Google it right now, so I don't want to slow it on the internet, but it would be interesting to look at those two side by side. Okay. Hmm. It's a food for thought. Interesting. Well, in this case, you do get created by credits, Marv Wolfman and George Perez, as you said. And um, the deal with uh, Deathstroke here is he, he was in the Army, and he ended up going through the special training and submitted for an experiment. It was a, They were testing some truth serums. Well, it ended up aug- augmenting him. It gave him super strength, super speed, super reflexes. Uh, they don't, and he ends up marrying his combat trainer Adeline. They have two kids, uh, Grant and Joseph. Now they have a third kid, uh, Rose, who doesn't get mentioned here. I don't know when Rose was introduced. It must have been much later than this. I, I thought it was the same time, but anyway. So he goes on as Deathstroke the Terminator becomes a mercenary. Um, this bad guy called the Jackal ends up holding Joseph hostage, his son, and in the struggle he slits Joseph's throat, which is why Jericho is mute. Uh, sorry, uh, Philemon, that's what happened, and cuts the vocal cords. Is very sad. And because of that, uh, the fact that Joseph lost his, his ability to speak is all related to Deathstroke being a mercenary. His wife, Adelaide, tries to kill him. She divorces him and shoots him in the head. And that's why he actually is missing his eye. It's because of his wife. He's not a bad guy, which is pretty cool. And he's always hanging around with this guy named Major Wintergreen, who's sort of his right-hand man. Now, the interesting thing about this entry is there is no mention of the Titans at all. 
which is really the core of the character, you know? So that, I found that very interesting. But really what they're doing is, is very much like that Black Canary entry we talked about earlier. They are setting up the Deathstroke ongoing series here. Because written by this entry is written by um, Marv Wolfman with art by Steve Irwin and Willie Blyberg. Well, that is the writer and artist team that goes on to do the Deathstroke, Deathstroke ongoing series, which starts three months from this point. So that's why I think they're not focusing on the Titans. They're focusing instead on Deathstroke's background and everything. Um, he's, he's very much an anti-hero. He's very much in the frame of Punisher. He really, really is. In fact, when they do his ongoing series, they even get Mike Zeck to draw the covers for a while. You know, which is to- a total nod to Punisher there. <laughs> and um, so it's, it's a really interesting character. I, I'm a big fan. A- in fact, here's, here's the magic of Who's Who and the magic of the new DC Universe app is that when I was prepping for this, I put down the Who's Who issue and I busted out the DC Universe app and I read the first five issues of the Deathstroke series from 1991 because I loved it so much. And it just uh, such a great character. And that was a great series. Really, really good. And this is one of the breakout characters really of the DC Universe. I mean, you think about it. He's gone on to be an Arrow. He's in, you know, he's been in the Justice League movie. He's been in lots of different cartoons, whether it be, uh, you know, the, the Teen Titans cartoons, or whatever. So he's really like uh, on the cusp of being a huge breakout star for DC characters. Yeah, I would buy the set. It really helps to have a great look, and he has a great, great yeah. look. Really, really does. Uh, for more on him, you can check out the Titan of the Defense podcast, or our buddy, Pop, uh, our buddy Tom Panarich does the Pop Culture Affidavit um, blog as well. Had a lot of Titans stuff. Now, at this point, Teen Titans were on issue number um, seventy-five, with the Titans Hunt was wrapping up, and uh, as I said, the the ongoing series was starting three months. So, up next is Universo, uh, which is another Legion villain. This one is drawn by Paris Collins. There you go. He should have done Blue Devil. And mm-hmm. Jim Fern. And Universo is standing there, uh, sort of adjusting his monocle and his, his hypno gem. And he's in a very, again, very kingly court sort of outfit with a giant cape. And he's got all these bad guys. Well, they're not bad guys. They're resistance fighters behind him. And you see the, you see the earth, a map of the earth glowing in the foreground. Um, now, it's not. Um, it's not uh, Al Gordon or, or Keith Giffen, but still looks 5YL. What do you think of this one? I'm, I'm unfamiliar with uh, Jim Fern. Uh, I, interesting style because I would not have pegged this as Paris Collins. Agreed. Uh, because it's very scratchy and it almost like – if I look at it quickly, it almost looks like Esteban, Esteban Roto to me hmm. with all the little filigrees and all these little ink lines and stuff like that. So it's like – it's interesting that he really transformed – Paris Collins work. I don't mean that in a bad way to Paris Collins. It just it just looks atypical of his kind of stuff. And so yeah, I like his costume is cool. I mean, again, he doesn't really have one. He's in just like traditional clothes and stuff like that. So yeah, it's a nice listing. I only really know him just really basically from Who's Who listings. And understandable. I don't know that I've ever read any issues where he was the villain. I've read him in the 5YL, but he's not really a villain in there. Which, which, so I'll go over the history real quick. He was a former Green Lantern, and he wanted to see the uh, beginning of time. So he looked, much like Kronos did, he looks back into the history of time, and as you know, that gets you in trouble with the, Green, with the, with the Guardian. So he got fired as Green Lantern. Then he gets his hands on this mystical hypno-gem, which gives him the greatest hypnotic powers of the era. And so he's, he uses his powers to hypnotize the Earth several times. One of the people opposing him is his own son, Ron Vidar, who is brilliant, and he, and he like Ron and Ron invented the time cube and became a Green Lantern himself, and opposed his dad. And Universo, as I said, it, it, it takes over the Earth many times. Now, in the Five YL era, it was sort of interesting. Universo ends up running this army of resistance fighters who are resisting against the EarthGov and the totalitarian regime there. So technically, he's still a bad guy, but he's doing the right thing, but for his own selfish reasons. So it's sort of interesting. I, I, I haven't really seen him as a bad guy. I've really seen him as a guy helping the good guys even though he's doing it selfishly. 
So, right. Border is Black, written by Tom and Mary Beerbaum, and we've already talked about his powers and everything. First appearance is Adventure Comics number 349, so October 1966. All right, up next is Vicky Vale. Vicky Vale. Vicky Vale. Drawn by, amazingly, Mark Hempel. It is Vicky Vale. It's a it's a shot from the ground looking up at her. She is dodging bullets when she's standing there holding her camera. Incredibly stylized. Her it's it's almost forgive the expression. I'm, I'm not trying to be crude. It's almost an upskirt shot. The way Mark Hempel is drawn, it's it's very sexy with her legs in the foreground. And Batman's running up behind her, trying to save her as the bullets fly at her. I think this drawing is amazing. What do you think of this one? Oh, I like it a lot. I'm a big fan of Mark Hempel. He did a he did a series. I remember in the '80s called Blood of the Innocent, which was uh, Dracula versus Jack the Ripper. Oh, wow. Uh, which I really loved. And again, it's kind of cartoony, but also scratchy. This one, again, reminds in a different way of – reminds me of the old Who's Who listings where they would kind of go a little risky and get mm. like an independent artist. Because this, this current Who's Who series doesn't really have that. It's a little more straight ahead in terms of – because, of course, they're using characters that are currently in continuity. Yeah. But this is, this is more like, hey, let's just get somebody fun that we don't rarely see want to draw one of our characters and have them do it. So I really, I really like this one. I could see – why people might not like it because it's so stylized and the the legs can be a little wonky if you look at the you know the perspective you're like wow those are some kind of weird chicken legs she got going there <laughs> uh, but but I think the style of it carries the day and the coloring is really beautiful I love the magenta sky and it gives you the situation that she's kind of like Lois Lane and a trepid reporter getting into trouble but of course in the background is Batman who is presumably going to take out the guys firing the guns at her yeah I I, I think this is great Mark Hempel uh, he posted this on Tumblr one day and. Said it was his sole contribution to the Batman mythos. So this is the only there time I guess go. he's done anything with the Batman and stuff. I think it's great. I think it's one of the stand-up pieces of the issue. I love it. And here's the thing: this thing, this whole entry is a win because it's, it's written by Kevin Dooley. And let me tell you, Kevin Dooley usually does goofy stuff. Dude, this entry is exceptionally well written. I felt like it tells a story. It talks basically about the story of her life. Uh, viewed as a child, and, and how the camera affected her life. For as a child model, and then how she goes on to become this photojournalist. I mean, it just really, really tells a very powerful story, and I, I got wrapped up in it. And I have, other than seeing Kim Basinger as Vicky Vale, I haven't cared that much about Vicky Vale over the years. And so this one really got me to be invested, and I was very impressed. Yeah, it's a great, um, it's a superb list. Yeah, and the and the inset picture is you know like her class picture, but then the bottom it's her and Bruce Wayne like out on a date, and he sees the bat signal. So uh, the border is blue for supporting cast. Uh, her first appearance was Batman number forty nine, all the way back to nineteen fifty. Now at this point, she had appeared in the Batman comic books. Uh, I didn't pick out the specific numbers, but it had been with the most recent months. Her and Bruce had sort of rekindled a romance, and then it didn't work out. Uh, and of course, again, she's most famously known probably for the nineteen eighty nine Batman movie, which is absolutely fantastic. And if if you want more on Vicky Vale, you should definitely check out the Night Batman Nightcast, the Overlooked Dark Knight podcast, um, or check out the Batman 1989 movie. So. Vicky Vale. And our last entry in the book is Vixen, drawn by Kev McGuire and Joe Rubenstein. And uh, it is her sort of fl- – she's flying through the air, I guess, because those are clouds behind her. And you see the sun streaking through there, and she is obviously emulating the power of an eagle because you can see the eagle or maybe it's a hawk behind her. And uh, she's in her purple jumpsuit costume, which is like zipped down very low. But she's got a red utility – I mean, sorry, blue, uh, yellow utility belt, and it's all purple. And she's got the short haircut at this point. She's sort of looking off into the distance. I think it's a nice piece. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's Kevin McGuire and Joe Rubenstein. I'm, I'm a little iffy on this costume oh, really? as much as the other one. Although I like 
like this hair more than okay. the Wolverine hair that she had when she was in Justice League Detroit. Uh, but of course, a, a lot of this is the facial muscle, the facial pictures. I mean, Kevin McGuire was a master at that. I love the inset where she's getting scolded and she has this kind of smart assy look on her yeah. face. That looks really cool. And once again, like I mentioned back when we did that Legends episode with Michael Bailey, uh, where I talked about Justice League Detroit as drawn by John Byrne, how awesome they looked. Yeah. Here we see them drawn by Kevin McGuire and they look super cool. They really so do. So it all really do. just depends on kind of how it's done. Man, Justice League Detroit could have been something, man. It really could mm-hmm. have. I mean, it could have been like Teen Titans. We could have been talking about these characters all for you. Anyway. Um, I like the purple costume. I thought when she took that on in the Suicide Squad, it sort of fit for their missions, you know, because the brown mm-hmm. costume, as much as I love it, is a little skimpy, you know. It's oh sure, absolutely. So I, I liked the yeah. purple one a little bit better. So uh, the deal with Vixen, uh, created by by the way by uh, Jerry Conway and Bob Oxner, and uh, Vixen was uh, there's there's this African legend about the Tantum Totem, which is this device which grants the user animal powers. And unfortunately, in her history, she was living in Africa. Her mother was killed by poachers. Her father was killed by an evil uncle of hers who was killed him over the getting the Tantum Totem. Well, she fled to America. She ends up becoming a model. She's a very, very successful model. Ends up world traveling. And she ends up having an opportunity to steal the totem back from her evil uncle. She does this and then becomes the vixen. She joins Just League Detroit, eventually the Suicide Squad. Gets in a relationship with Bronze Tiger. Uh, really great character with a lot of rich history and has gone on to even a lot more since then. Uh, this entry is written by Robert Greenberger. We talked about the art already. Uh, it's a really nice piece for a character who's gone much, much further than this since then. I mean, you think about it. She's, uh, you know, she was in Justice League Unlimited cartoon. Uh, she's in the Legends of Tomorrow television series. Uh, she had her own 12-issue, uh, 12 12-episode 12 animated web series as well. Uh, it, the character's really gone a long way to uh, building up her sort of, her cachet, if you will. I love the character. Now, the first appearance here is Action Comics number 521 uh, from July 1981, but you and I both know that's actually not really her first appearance. Her first appearance was Vixen number one from the DC Implosion, which was never actually published. So, very sad that that, that got lost in the ages. That always, uh, the, her, her first appearance always brings up that weird issue of uh because there are comic books dc comics where she appears in an ad mm-hmm. where it talks about vixen number one and it's like well is that her first appearance it's there she is but i guess uh comic book historians or whoever decides these things say no it's it's when she appears in a story that that's her first appearance and that would be action 521 good point Good point. So if you want more on Vixen, you can check out the Task Force X podcast. Or the, again, Frank over at the DC Bloodlines has done a bunch of stuff on Vixen over the years. So um, great character. Suicide Squad was on issue 52 at this point. And I'm watching Legends of Tomorrow right now, by the way. I'm on the third season. I'm absolutely loving that show. I finally figured out how to frame my brain around it so I can enjoy the show. Uh, it's really just a Justice League International type show. It's very goofy. You've got uh, Booster and Beetle analogs. Once you understand that, you can really, really enjoy the heck out of that show. And I'm loving Vixen on that show. She's absolutely fantastic. And she's actually not even Mari McCabe in that. She's Mari's grandmother. Um, there's two vixens at this point because it's a time travel show. You've got the grandmother who is part of the JSA and then you've got Mari who is modern day. So it's pretty cool. Hmm. All right. All right, Rob. This is the end of the issue. So as I do every time, I'm going to ask you what were your favorite entries in this issue? Certainly Black Canary, uh, Blue Devil, Bouncing Boy, mm, maybe not Dr. Fate. It's close. Um, Vicky Vale, like we just talked about, probably. Uh, yeah, I'd say those are my favorite ones. Okay. For me, it's uh, without a doubt Calabac and Vicky Vale. Oh, are... shoot. Calabac, yes. I should have okay. mentioned that. I was like, wow. I, I didn't know you dropped it off your no, radar. Okay. I, I, I'm scanning through the thing and I just skipped it yep. over. Yes, of course. 
I think yeah. Calabac and Vicky Vale are the two best in the whole book. I just absolutely mm-hmm. love them. They're different. They stand out. They're amazing. Uh, I love the Tenzel Kim entry because it's just such a good representative of the 5YL era, and it's just fun. It's a fun one. Uh, I love Deathstroke because it looks exactly like the, the ongoing comic at that point. Uh, Missa, our White Witch, I thought was beautiful. Great entry. Yeah, that one's good too. Yep. You mentioned Bouncing Boy and Black Canary. Great ones. I liked Vixen as well. So I did not have Firehawk or Blue Devil on my list, but I want them on my list, so I'm, I'm going to try. So. All right. Well, that is going to do it for issue number nine. Uh, we're going to do, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break. When we come back, we are going to do your listener feedback from the most recent issue of Who's Who. Welcome to the world of tomorrow. <laughs> the Legion of Superheroes through the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, the Baxter series. Five years later, the reboot, the three boot, the retro boot, the animated series. We have banded together as the Legion of Super Bloggers to cover it all. Seek us out at legionofsuperbloggers.blogspot.com. Why do you always have to say it that way? Haven't you ever heard of a little thing called showmanship? To confront the ultimate killers, I must construct the ultimate alias. Hey, who is that lady? I think she could fly. To combat the murderers who destroy my family, crush my own life on their way to consuming everything, I must become a greater, more fearsome destroyer. Hey, man, somebody killed this lady. To track down the animals who prey on the innocent, I must stalk them first. I am no longer their quarry. I am the Huntress. New Huntress Podcast coming to you in 2019. Visit the 89blogspotcom for new episodes. Go to the Facebook page at Huntress Podcast. Go to Twitter, the Huntress Podcast. And you can always find episodes of the Huntress Podcast at rightonnetwork.com. And go to Apple iTunes, where this podcast is a joint venture with the Helena Bertinelli podcast and the Cassandra Kane Batgirl podcast. So go to Apple Podcasts, the Batgirl slash Huntress podcast. All right, folks, we are back from break and we are here for Who's Who's, How's, and Why's. This is your feedback pulled from Who's Who and the DC Universe number eight over on our website. We took the comments from there and your emails. Uh, again, just as a reminder, uh, we're only pulling website comments going forward and iTunes reviews and things like that and emails. We're not going to be pulling stuff from social media just because there's a little too much. It's a little too hard gathering all this. I mean, this document is uh, what is something like 22 pages, I think it is, of all feedback from you guys, which is amazing, which is also the reason why we're just going to sort of cherry pick different comments throughout here. Rob, you want to kick us off? Yeah, 22 pages. You guys went light on us this time. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to start off from uh, Tom Panneries, of course, from the Pop Culture Affidavit at In Country podcast. He says, another great episode, and dare I say that Rob seems to be actually enjoying himself while covering this series while I am saving whatever Shag does on his late night sugar and Mountain Dew binge so I can torpedo any of his political aspirations. <laughs> anyway, I feel like I do have to comment on the mess that Raven became after she returned in the white costume. Now, most of my experience with her has been through back issues since I started reading New Titans with number 71, but I at least found her a little intriguing during the Wolfman Perez era. 
after she returned full-time during the late 1980s, there was a lot of potential that was ultimately wasted. She was able to indulge her emotions and could manipulate the emotions of others. If I recall correctly, she went a little overboard with it and tried to manipulate Dick Grayson into falling for her, only to have Corey step in and put a stop to it. In a friendly way. Uh, which involved the two of them spending half an issue completely naked on a tropical island, as drawn by Eduardo Barreto. From there, whatever Marv is trying to do with her character was lost in a string of drawn-out and ultimately boring storylines during the late 1980s era that had only a few real highlights. I honestly wonder what Raven's rebirth and new personality would have been like if she'd been written by someone else, perhaps a woman. Yeah. Food for thought, Tom. Thank you. Yeah. Now, Raven, I, I always view her, and some of the comments here uh, contradict that, but I've always viewed Raven as the Titan a lot of people like, but is nobody's favorite, right? That's kind of how I saw her. Well, just yesterday, I went to Moe's, which is a, a local burrito place. If, for those of you outside of our country who don't know, for the last 10 years, America's been going through a love affair with fast food burritos. It's very strange. Um, anyway, if you don't have a Moe's in your area, you probably have a Chipotle or something like that. It's a, it's a burrito place. Anyway, I go there, and we go there a lot. My family goes there way too much. The point I'm getting to is there's this young lady behind the counter that I always see every time I go there. She likes superheroes. She, we always have – because I'm always wearing a superhero T-shirt. We always have comics, and I noticed she had a tattoo peeking out from under her sleeve. I'm like, oh, what's that? She pulled it up. She's got an enormous, and I mean enormous, like four inches tall tattoo of Raven. Wow. And I was like, whoa. And she's like, yeah, she's my favorite character. And I'm like, whoa. And, and, and I just was stunned because I was prepping for this episode. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. So there are, in fact, some people out there that absolutely love Raven. What, the, what Raven version is it? It looked pretty traditional because uh, we were in a hurry, so it was a big long line. So she, we didn't get to talk about it much. But it looked like the uh, dark blue sort of costume. Okay. It did not look like you know the animated versions. It looked like the comic version. Actually. Got it. Got it. Okay. So, um, then we heard from Chuck Coletta, who uh, just recently put together the bowl or helped put together the Bowling Green State University Batman Conference. He let us know that Lobo will be appearing in Krypton, the TV series season two. And he shared a trailer, and I got to say, the guy playing uh, Lobo looked really, really good. So thanks, Chuck. Her from Chris Lydon, who uh, says, was I the only one who wanted a Kate, Kent Shakespeare solo series? Well, Chris, no, you weren't. I also wanted to see Kent Shakespeare. And we uh, chimed in with Siskoid from the Firewater Podcast Network. He does a number of shows, including Oh, Hot Moo or Not, the upcoming Zero Hour Podcast, and more. He says, I was really stoked when Kent Shakespeare showed up in a late issue of Superman slash Batman. Batman as the, quote, Superman of another century. I think there's potential there. I totally agree, Siskoid. And then he comments about um, – we talked about Captain Comet and the Legion, L, the acronym Legion last time. It says Captain Comics – Captain – easier for me to say, right? Captain Comet's function in the acronym Legion was mostly to open his mouth in shock at all the bad things Feral Docs was doing. I wasn't a big fan of having him in there. Strata, on the other hand, was the team's sweetheart. She and Garve were great together, and if you talk about different female silhouettes, I think her atypical look was a great idea and very body positive. On a genre basis, why do all female aliens tend to have the same shape as humans, even when they aren't mammals? So very good point, Siskoid. And yes, uh, Strata was an excellent example of a female character who didn't look like a regular Earth female. In fact, finished la- uh, when we did Who's Who last month, I then got onto the DC Universe app and I read the first 12 issues of the Acronym Legion. It's really stinking good. It's so good. 
All right. We've got a comment from Mike Kramer. He says, I suppose you could say a version of death appears in one of the bonus episodes of Lucifer season three. This episode, which seems to take place after the finale to season three, and was most likely shot before the series cancellation was announced by Fox, features Ella having a friendship since childhood with a ghost girl named Ray Ray. However, what Ella does not know is that her friend is actually Azrael, the angel of death and Lucifer's sister. Thank yeah. you for that information. Like Lu- Lucifer is one of those shows that I knew was based on a comic book, and I've never seen a single frame of it. I didn't think it looked. <laughs> I never thought it looked bad. It just I don't know. It just now there's so much of this stuff. I just kind of cherry pick, and I just yeah. I, and, I, and and I don't know anyone who has ever seen the show other than Mike here. Mike's the only person oh. I've ever known that's, that's seen it. I can help you. My wife. Oh, she likes so, it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Which is crazy. I had to tell her it was from a comic book. She's like, what? I'm like, yeah. Because the way it works is, you know, Lucifer appeared in Sandman, new by Neil Gaiman. And then they started a, a spinoff series called Lucifer, which was a Vertigo series. And that is what is actually adapted for the TV show is the Lucifer series. So crazy. But yeah, my wife was watching it and I had to tell her it was from a comic. So it was very exciting. It's not really going to help me because I know I'm not allowed to talk to your wife. That is true. Only Chris Franklin and Siskoid are allowed to talk to my wife. So, terribly sorry. Wow. Jeez. Well, okay. Well, b- boss too. Boss too. So pretty much uh, half of the network is allowed. Well, I'll, maybe Ryan. So, yeah, about half the network is allowed to talk also to Also Max, right, and Bass and Nathaniel. Well, not Nathaniel, but you know, well, everybody no. else. Yeah. <laughs> Don't be stupid, Rob. Let's not go crazy. <laughs> Uh, then we heard from Jeff Tischer, who writes, uh, The Brain and Monsignor Malai always thought there was an interesting juxtaposition between Robot Man and the Brain that both are under the same medical predicament, being a brain in a can. It's just how they choose to live life that uh, – I'm sorry. It's just how they choose to uh, live that life. You know, I – did we talk about that? I don't know that no, I ever put I that together. No, so that's really good insight, Jeff. Thank you. Through multiple uh, Monsieur Mala and Brain and Roboman entries, we've never had that insight. So, yeah, thanks, Jeff. <laughs> uh, he's staring us in the face. All right. He's now regarding death. He says, one of my favorite characters. As far as a movie goes, I think Sandman would be terrible as a movie. It said it would work better as a high-end TV series. Given the characters and their arcs, trying to give a satisfying storyline in a two-and-a-half-hour, three-hour movie would just not work. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it, it, Anyone who's ever read any of the Neil Gaiman stuff realized that you couldn't possibly condense it all into a movie and have it be anywhere near as charming and beautiful as the the series. Absolutely. It definitely needs a, a series uh, treatment. Uh, then he says about Lobo. He says, I think the downfall of Lobo beyond the overexposure was also that Keith Giffen lost control of the character. I remember reading and hearing uh, or a possibly apocryphal story where Keith – to do a story with Lobo and was told by the editor he couldn't do it because Lobo wouldn't act the way Giffen wanted him to, which is absolutely crazy. Now, I, I can tell you years later, uh, Giffen got regained control of Lobo in, a, I think it was called the Reign of Hell miniseries, and he had Lobo basically come out of hell, and he was basically saying that Lobo had been in hell for like, I don't know, 15 years, and the Lobo running around in the DC Universe wasn't the real Lobo. And that was the way he, he kind of resolved you know, all the stuff he didn't like. Oh, Keith Giffen, you scamp. <laughs> and he says, uh, regarding the mediocre character titles, because we've talked a lot about those, the, their logos, says, I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that this is the era where Quark Express and thus the computer page layout was becoming indispensable. All of a sudden, hundreds of fonts were available and it was easier to pop one of them in rather than pay an artist like Todd Klein to come up with something for a one-off page in Who's Who. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, we criticize them. We talk about the lack of creativity, but it may have just come down to cost. It could have been it. 
Yeah, I, I think he's I think he's right on the money there. Uh, Robert Ward says, you bring up the Who's Who trailer featuring Rob's growing exasperation regarding the entries, and I have to say, that trailer is among my favorite podcast trailers ever. I didn't, I didn't know who Ken Speaks Shakespeare was and found it hilarious. I love finding out who he was, and he didn't end up a disappointing segment after the buildup. Yeah, I do love that trailer, and I have to give credit or credit to That was all shag. I just came in and recorded <laughs> my parts, but that that is a great trailer. It's very, very funny, it completely accepting that I'm part of it. I just... It's it. You did a great job on that. It's, it's a really wonder. I, I laugh at it every time I hear it. I, it was written at six in the morning in an airport uh, on one of my many trips around the world uh, or in our fair country for work, and it just came to me like the whole thing fully formed, like just all boom at one moment. I scribbled it all down, shared it with you. Michael Bailey suggested the music, which is absolutely perfect. Right, Pocket full yeah, of kryptonite. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah it's. Uh, I'm very proud of it. Yeah. yeah so thank good. you, Robert. That makes me very happy. I appreciate that, Robert. Uh, then we're from Alex Bowman. This is finally Hero Hotline. I mean, this dude is jazzed for Hero hotline i'm not kidding uh and i'm only reading part of what he wrote here <laughs> he says as far as i know i am the only person to ever do hero hotline fan art and since you are some of the only guys who might ever look at them with any sort of recognition whatsoever i'm sharing them you're welcome uh he, he gave us links to all of them so you should definitely check that out in the comments also he reminded us that he's the nerd who contributed the composite aqua storm years ago to us because when we were on a kick about uh composite superman he did this great <laughs> drawing and in fact it's on a book i gave you rob for your birthday one year with all this uh, stuff from our show, and there's a drawing of a half Aquaman, half, fire, half Firestorm in there. And mm-hmm. now we know it's by Alex Bowman. Awesome. Then we heard from Kevin from New Orleans. He says, did y'all ever read the Madam Xanadu book written by Matt Wagner featuring the Phantom Stranger in the first arc? I have. It was it was epic. And Kevin from New Orleans, Rob and I are both here to tell you, you are right. It is epic, and it's fantastic. Yeah, that was a good series. I really enjoyed it. That series was fantastic. Loved it. Then we're here from Lewis. Uh, he says, for me, Green Lantern is really about the core and the three musketeers of Hal, Guy, and John. Compared to the former two, Stuart struck me as the one who really went native with his marriage to Kat Matui and his work within um, the Mosaic. Then he says, DC really screwed up by not hooking up widower John with the essentially widowered Hawkwoman in the comics proper. You're absolutely right. I mean, Justice League Unlimited and Justice League really created this wonderful romance between uh, John Stewart and Hawkgirl, and they really should have pursued that in the comics. It's just too, it's too good of a thing not to. So yeah, it's a shame they did that. Michael Bailey from the Fortress of Bailey Two Network, including Crisis from Crisis to Crisis and more shows. Uh, he says no Superman characters this time out. Sad panda face. <laughs> Michael, come on. It can't. Jeez. Uh, regarding the Phantom Stranger, insert recommendation for the novel DC Universe Trail of Time here. This was the story that made me like the Phantom Stranger. Of course, he will always be the character that very nearly deep sixed my relationship with Rob. Rob probably doesn't remember this, but I made a disparaging comment about the Stranger nearly a decade ago, and Rob posted that we were done professionally. It's not, <laughs> it's, it's not my fault, though. My only previous experiences with the character were Legends, let me stand around and pontificate with Darkseid, the man who murdered Santa Claus, let me show up and be mysterious for no reason, and his Action Comics guest appearance, let me barge into Clark's life and tell him jack about what I need him before getting him into a supernatural fight. I have since warmed to him, and that Secret Origins issue is one of my favorites. Oh, don't worry, Michael. I didn't forget. <laughs> I have to sort of back up his play, though. Like, 90% of the Phantom Stranger stories I've read, he just stands around being a, an all-knowing dick. Michael, uh, Michael so. is right, yes. If those are the ones that you read, you would be like, what, what is with this dude? So I get it, yeah. I, 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 I'm mostly the same, yeah. so I can't 
Yeah, yep. say that. So, and then he says, Raven, I'm with Shag in that I hate this character in the comics but love her in other media. She was one of the few things that kept me watching the Titans live action series to the end. Maybe it's because she's a goth witch type character named Rachel. If you know Mike, you know what that you know what that means. Because uh, maybe it was the writing. I don't know for sure, but I liked her on that show and was pulling for her the entire time. In the comics, this character has never done anything important, nor is she in any way likable. Hmm. All right. Uh, then we heard from Liz Ann Oswalt, and Liz writes Timber. Oh, okay, because we talked about Timberwolf last time, and I talked about how uh, I usually get this wrong about what Timberwolf and Wolverine and the connections there. And Liz writes, Timberwolf did not copy Logan's cool factor. He had it first. In fact, the badass characterness that was put uh, was put in by the artist of Legion of Superheroes, Dave Cockrum. He just brought over what he did to t- uh, to change Timberwolf when he left to go work for Marvel. So there you go. So Timberwolf was cool before Wolverine. So my mistake. I am very sorry. Hmm. Then we heard from Philemon, who is one of my favorite people in the world because Phil- Philemon is a crazy person who's locked in an asylum who they let out and teach kids once in a while. And he likes to use their completely nonsensical and go against everything that makes any sense. Um, but he says he doesn't have much controversial to say this time. He says, in fact, this issue was my favorite of the loosely version, which seemingly all of my favorite entries come from this one issue. So Philemon, you don't know this, uh, but – Believe it or not, you did share a controversial statement just there, and you did prove you and I are opposites because when Rob and I recorded last month uh, off air, I told Rob, I said, this is like one of the weakest issues I've ever read. So the fact that it's your favorite fits in perfectly. Thank you, final <laughs> one. That's great. Uh, he – and I highlighted this comment simply because I think he's one of the only people that commented on The Butcher. He says, for whatever reason, I avidly collected The Butcher series at the time and remember enjoying it. Oh, there you go. So someone read it. That's fantastic. And I just collected, avidly collected. Exactly. Uh, he says, uh, regarding Punch and Julie, every positive feeling I have ever had about the Loose Leaf edition of Huzu is wrapped up in this single entry. Maybe this is controversial, but I think this is the very best image in the entire latter run of the title. And I felt that way before Shag pointed out that Aquaman is being eaten by a shark. <laughs> Um, Philemon, I don't think that's controversial at all. I think that Punch and Julie entry is could be on the arguable uh, good uh, best list of from the whole series. It's fantastic. Definitely one of the best conceived, no doubt about yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, then he goes on about Raven. He goes, "Okay, time to get back to being old Philemon. <laughs> if Jericho did not exist, Raven would be my all-time favorite Titan. And your dislike of her is absolutely mystifying to me. As I mentioned, her power set is unique, and if her personality is not everyone—I'm sorry—and her personality is not everyone's cup of tea, it is at least something different from the two established personalities women are allowed to have in comics." One, super serious, hyper-aggressive badass, or flirty, brainless bombshell. Hmm, That's fair. Uh, She is one of the few introverted female heroes and is often the emotional heart of the Titans team. All right. Well, there you go. So uh, even even Raven is not his favorite, but close. Uh, Ryan Daly from our network, of course. He does Cheers Cast and It's a Midnight Podcasting Hour and supposedly Nightcast. Says, uh, (laughs) oh, man, the mere mention of the names Flaw, Barter, and Child brings me back to the secret origin of Hawk and Dove and activates my gag reflex. I I love Paul Hicks and Dr. Ange, but how they derive any enjoyment out of those characters' concepts eludes me. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, wait till next month. It's all going to come back to you because we're going to talk about Velvet Tiger next month. Mm. Uh, then we heard from Max Traver, who goes, I am one of the truly lucky few to own a physical copy of Zoom's Who Volume 1. There simply aren't enough accolades, uh, accolades that can be assigned to this book. It definitely belongs in everyone's long boxes right alongside their original Who's Who collection. I've read through it twice already, and it's truly impressive and an entertaining accomplishment. So you're absolutely right. Uh, I've got my Zoom's Who copy right with my Who's Who's as well. It is absolutely stunning. And we'll be talking about it shortly. Uh, Chris Franklin from our network, of course, he does JLU cast and Superman Movie Minute with me. He says, sorry, Rob, I agree with Shag. I should have read this for, before I started. He says, so, <laughs> so, sorry, Rob, I agree with Shag on the Spectre image. I love Matt Wagner too, but the Spectre looks too scrawny here and not at all powerful. Or not all powerful. Uh, I don't know if you read through all the comments, Rob, but there are a lot of people. Backing up my play on the Spectre there. Cindy, saying, please go and punch your husband right now. Thank you. <laughs> well, then you're going to have to go through the comments and find everyone else that agrees that that Spectre entry is total weak sauce. Matt Wagner is capable of so much more. Well, no, just because it's easy to tell Cindy to punch Chris because she'll do it. So I mean, That's true. That, yeah. I told you when we had dinner together, I tried to get her to punch me. She wouldn't do it. So, oh well. Uh, he says, Shag often has insane comic theories that are his and his alone. But <laughs> the idea of DC. <laughs> Raise the Skywalker. <laughs> she is. Anyway, uh, but the idea of DC <laughs> chasing Harlequin for decades is downright profound. From Alan Scott's foe slash love interest slash wife to Duella Dent to Julie here to prank on the Flash TV show, the, uh, there was a long and winding road to the omnipotent and now annoyingly overexposed Miss Quinn. <laughs> thank you, Chris. I appreciate that. Recognizing my brilliance in my own time. It doesn't happen too often for geniuses. So thank you. <laughs> oh, Lord. Gothos Mansion uh, writes in, and he talks about who's who, but who cares? He gets uh, the stuff I talk about. <laughs> he says, uh, that said, the real reason I'm commenting is how dare Rob mention the absolutely awesome oeuvre of the late great Andy Sedaris right after he puts film and water on hold. Rob, you've got to know that every guy who was a teenager in the 80s loved those films, and you should have covered them. As the great Andy himself once said, if you don't like pretty girls and explosions, then you're just a communist. I <laughs> I spent $5 on a set of 12 movies, 10 directed by Andy, and two by his much less talented son. And I'll bet Abraham Lincoln was never as proud as when his likeness was used to purchase such fine entertainment. As, <laughs> as for the Tweed Sisters versus Sybil Danning, I've always considered myself to be a Laura Gemser man. Okay, now I have to stop there. Oh my I gosh. am totally a Laura Gemser man. Laura Gemser all the way. But I don't put Laura Gemser in the same... Uh, a ballpark, and I don't mean that in a bad way, as Sybil Danning or the Tweed Sisters, because Laura Gemser was pretty much just did erotica. As far as I know, she didn't do action movies or, or stuff like that. Well, the Tweed Sisters did thrillers, and Sybil Danning did action. Now, their stuff had nudity, but Laura Gemser was Emmanuel, and like that's what her... So, to me, she's a, she's a different classification, but I will mark me down as a Laura Gemser man all the way. I can't believe we're having this conversation. <laughs> I don't know. What's the problem? He brought it up. Actually, I brought it up by mentioning Shannon Tweed, uh, well, the Tweed sisters, okay. uh, a couple right. episodes ago. Right. <laughs> and throughout the comments, it keeps going, which is the crazy right. thing. Well, I highlighted every one of them. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog comment box commentary and Legion of Super Bloggers uh, says, yes, I will cover the Creeper B&B story with you, Rob. Oh, I have my answer. I'm floating on air. You proposed on the air, and uh, he says, yes, that's, that's wonderful. Right. Perfect. He says, I love the five-year-later Legion and all the things comic-related. Uh, I'm sorry. And 
And of all the things comic-related I have done in social media, I consider my reviews of the first 50 issues of that series as my crowning achievement. Wow. Because Ange has produced a lot of great content over the years on the web. And to him say his reviews of the 5YL is his crowning achievement, that speaks volumes. And, folks, his reviews are exceptional. They're over on the Legion of Super Bloggers. Uh, and, and if you're scared to try the 5YL, read a couple of his reviews, and I think you'll get hooked. Uh, and then he says uh, – yeah. <laughs> what's that? No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay. And then he says, I will admit, I never understood what the big whoop was about Sandman. I was guilted into buying the last couple of years by people who called me stupid for not reading it and not liking it. I say that this is a prelude to being, um, to being one of those guys who felt it was a letdown by the, quote, you'll meet her someday text on death. Here I was thinking to myself that maybe I would read her history and be inspired to read uh, and like Sandman, but no. Wow. So, Rob, you, I thought you was a figment in your imagination saying that people tree last issue, but I, there you go. There's one person. It was Dr. Ange, a well-respected medical professional in our community. Telling someone that they're stupid if they don't read the thing you're reading is definitely a way to make friends. No doubt about that. That's uh, insane. And then uh, Ange uh, follows up with definitely Shannon's weed. Definitely. Um, proving once again that Dr. Ange is a man of, of taste because I right. totally agree. All right. All right. Uh, then James Stubbs writes, Hey guys, there is a Sandman podcast. Well, kinda. It's the Rereading Comics Podcast over at RoganHamby.com. So check that out. Spent the first season doing the full run of Sandman. Very cool. Thank you, James. Uh, then we heard from Jeff R., who says, I like Raven as a character, but she does have some problems, and most of her problems are Trigon. He says, see, Trigon is a world-beating menace. The first story, he chumps the entire JLA, an A-list version, between panels. Now, the daughter of a cosmic-level threat, that's a great character hook. That's Gamora. But Trigon can't hold up to Thanos, even if he's similarly powerful. Trigon is forever regulated relegated, sorry, to his own private hell dimension as an entirely absent from the DCU unless he's about to destroy it. Later on, they link Trigon to the Brother Blood Cult, which is a good idea for keeping him present ever uh, when he's absent, but he should be a power. Darkseid and Brainiac and Sinestro should have to take him into account in their plans. Having Trigon as an external factor would give Raven more to do. Also, writers should embrace her morally ambiguous, manipulative side rather than write her as a wallflower. You know, Jeff, that is some great insight about Raven, especially some great insight about Trigon. Because, I mean, he he's never important unless the story's about him. And he's never even that interesting. So, huh, well done, Jeff. Thank you. All right. Uh, Ward Hill Terry says, uh, lastly, the Phantom Stranger. I didn't know that Rob was an expert. I've always liked the Stranger, and I prefer the Apero No Eyes version. I know he's almost always drawn with the white eyes visible in the shadow under his hat brim, but I like it when it's just shadow. Although I do love the visible white eyes when he's drawn as a silhouette, anything touched by zoom is magnificent. That's very true. Mm. Uh, (laughs) David Ace Gutierrez, uh, joke, 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 writes, uh, the Comperbird connection. I was thinking it was more along the lines of the Osterman weekend or the French and Chinese connection. But no, my brother Robert references the Dallas connection, one of any Sedaris' final films. I look forward to covering the Sedaris Library in the upcoming Film and Warner miniseries, Julie in July. A look at the films of Julie K. Smith, my favorite, and Julie Strain. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, of course, that was David A. Scudio's executive producer right, of Pod Dylan and the go. owner and operator of – the owner and the operator of Katana Banana. Um, now, you know, one of the things I didn't capture here because we didn't do the social media, didn't someone uh, – didn't Derek Crabb or somebody do a, a Kupperberg Connection poster? Yes, he made up a he, – he put Paul's head – uh, on a on a on a Andy Sedaris film poster, which was deeply upsetting. 
<laughs> okay, all right. Uh, then we heard from Damian Whiter. He says, about Blackthorn, he goes, I discovered the Kupperberg Vigilante series when I was reading Action Comics Weekly and went looking for more work by Rick Burchett. He was, uh, he was only inking Vigilante, but when I picked up a few issues, I got into the story and started picking up more. Because of this, Blackthorn was the first comic character whose boobs I ever saw. Also, some of us like Magenta. Well, that was her, her costume. Uh, the color, not the character. I'm not insane. <laughs> uh, regarding death, he says, perfect. I always like when they play with the form. If every entry was written in the same style, it would deny the true diversity of the DC universe. Absolutely true. I totally agreed. And he goes, Lobo. He goes, Simon Bisley was born to draw Lobo. I'm intrigued by the background characters. The guy in the Batman t-shirt looks like how Bisley caricatures himself. So I guess the others are his friends. Does anyone know? Hmm, that's a good question. If anyone knows, let us know. Yeah, I don't think we mentioned the Batman t-shirt guy in the background, which is, we should have because that was a funny detail. Uh, yep. Nuclon, now that you pointed out the background, I'm unable to unsee the contradictory perspective. Uh. This has been my favorite Wozniak page for years, and you've ruined it. I hope you're <laughs> proud. This episode, there was a lot of talk about dull types at logos, so I want to draw attention to how cool the Nuclon logo is. Todd Klein is definitely challenging Gaspar Saladino on this one. Hmm. Interesting. So, uh, yeah, Rob, curse you. I still love that Nuclon entry. I think it's very well done, so sorry, I don't care about the sorry. I do a lot of that. I, a lot of, I, I ruined, apparently, Superman 2 for Michael Bailey by pointing out the Bill Cosby picture in the background. I, it's just what I do. <laughs> you are the ruiner. I ruin stuff. Uh, then the ventriloquist, he goes, as you mentioned, this, uh, this should be listed as Scarface, not the ventriloquist, and the entry should maintain the mystery of who is in control. Brayfogle is on great form as always, and it's great to see a story being told over the two sides of the page, with Scarface in control on the front page and Batman having smashed into the club on the back page. Another genius gone too soon. Absolutely true. Yes. Dead on, Damien. Yeah. Uh, DC Dave says, I love it when Rob gets overly enthusiastic like he did this month with Captain Comet. There was just such authentic joy in his voice when talking about him. It was fun to listen to. Well, thank you, David. If you want to hear authentic joy, you should listen to my Pod Dylan show because there I'm like super happy in every episode. That's true. That's true. And here you probably didn't hear as much of that with Legion. So probably not. No. <laughs> <laughs> Although, OK, to be fair, to Rob's credit, he really was a good sport this issue. I mean, come on, everyone. Round of applause for Mr. Kelly. I got to say, you really did struggle through very well. And um, you, I think you found something nice to say about every entry. So I was impressed. Well, thank done. you. Thank you. Uh, Joe X, who says th- thrust who was Lobo's son from the Timberwolf miniseries, wasn't the only crappy skateboard-related Legion character. Jam from the Bloodlines crossover was involved in Bryn Londo's return to the 30th century. Oh my gosh, Joe X, when I read that comment, my head exploded. Because in my mind, I had conflated Thrust and Jam to being the same miserable individual character. Now I know there's two of these terrible things out there that I've forgotten about. So thank you so much for that. Oh my gosh. Um, uh, Martin Gray from the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog says, as a fellow professional librarian, Captain Comet could run a space Birds of Prey. You can have that for free, DC. <laughs> uh, he says, Ken Shakespeare was the hottest entry of the book, but Phantom Stranger is my favorite. Uh, and then, <laughs> we talked a lot about uh, last time uh, uh, Raven and how she had all these clouds behind her that were very like George Perez type clouds. And he calls it I love Raven and her farts of doom. <laughs> you know, it's like anyone mentions farts, you like turn into an eleven-year-old with a case of the giggles. It can't help but be funny. And just knowing that and thinking about how Perez always drew those uh, clouds, it's like, oh, that's pretty hysterical. 
So, all right. Uh, maybe it's just me. Anyway, Tim, <laughs> Tim Price writes, uh, my DC RPG books are long gone, but if I remember right, and probably not, Timberwolf's strength was a 34, topped only by Block at a 35, and Wildfire at 35, and Ultra Boy at 44, and Monol at 46. Uh, basically, what he's trying to say is that Timberwolf was one of the strongest Legionnaires, like very, very powerful. Hmm. And he goes, hmm, I'm drawing a complete blank on Superboy or Supergirl's strength stats. Odd. Aw, that's a post-crisis joke. That's mean. That's not nice, Tim. <laughs> then Joe Cabrera wrote in, and he's uh, talking about uh, the previous episode, episode 7, where we were talking about Lightning Lass, and I was pronouncing the character's real name and apparently struggling with it. He says, does Shag keep saying Ilya instead of Alia? Uh, I think Rob's distaste for the Legion is affecting him subliminally, subliminally, which is quite possible. Or I'm just really, really bad at pronouncing things, Joe. That's probably more the case. Yeah, I think that's it. Heard from Robert Markham. He goes, uh, if you find it hard to imagine Darkseid having a father, try picturing him with a brother. One summoned when the forever people activate their mother box and say, Teru! Yes, the Infinity Man is another son of Yuga Khan and Hegra, appointed by his pre- by the previous Infinity Man, as I saw in the New Gods trade paperback I picked up at Ollie's. Well, Robert, I for one have to apologize that you had to suffer through that. So, because uh, it's the forever people, and that's never good for anyone's health. So. Oh, and now I'm picturing like a, a comedy, like a Will Ferrell, John C. Riley stepbrothers comedy, but it's Dark Side and. and uh... And the Infinity Man. That would be oh, really cool. Oh, that's fantastic. Cool. Yeah, well, who, right. would, who would play the uncncle, Steppenwolf? There, there's got to be some. There's got to be some comedy gold in that. Yeah, like I got Or somebody. I, I got to think about it. I, I need to. Okay. I need to. I need to work on workshop this a little. Uh, Nicholas <laughs> uh, Alhelm uh, says, "Working my way through the podcast now." Shay Anton Pensa is definitely a dude. No idea what he's doing now, though he has a truly epic tripod site out there still. Thank you, Nicholas. I said I looked through a bunch of things that I could – I never saw any pronouns, but uh, thank you for the information. Now, that was the artist in The Butcher, right? Yes, yes. Okay, right, yeah. They were from Diablo Frank from the Rolled Spine Podcast uh, Network and the Moral Superheroes Podcast and many, many more. And I got to say, Frank was clearly on his meds this month because he wrote a lot of really good stuff. So we just sort of cherry-picked a few of them. He says, I think Ares is one of the few Perez designs that holds up under other artists. That's fair. Uh, and, you know, I think we could throw Deathstroke in that group as well. I think both of those, their, their costumes do hold up by, uh, when drawn by other people. Then he goes on to say, I think I've, uh, I've said it before, but I shall repeat. Jon Stewart is the finest Green Lantern Corpsman bar none. And every moment Hal Jordan is on the stage where Stewart isn't makes me hate and resent him all the more. <laughs> and he says, the 1990s relaunch wisely recognized that Hal Jordan couldn't carry a series on his own. And it turned it into a quasi-team book with rotating art teams. As the black guy in that circle, Mark Bright was assigned to Jon Stewart's stories. And while Mark Bright was admittedly a journeyman, active at the time of the extreme art, uh, with age I've come to respect the hell out of his clear storytelling and character's personality that served him well on comedies like Quantum and Woody. Still, when Mosaic allowed Stewart to uh, really play in avant-garde alien weirdness, it was best that we got people like Cully Hamner who were more on that wavelength. Yeah, absolutely. Stewart is a fantastic Green Lantern, and he doesn't get enough credit. But um, it's interesting. Mark, I, I may have to reevaluate Mark Bright based on what you said. I, I don't hold him in high regard in my memory, uh, but you know what? Maybe it's worth re-examining. Then about Lobo, he says, uh, I came in with Lobo's back and the paramilitary special, two of the only actually funny, legitimately satirical Lobo books. He was also fun in the Acronym Legion. As Alan Grant began to take custody away from Keith Giffen during his run as the de facto co-star in The Demon and the endless miniseries and specials, the main man became the vile, swaggering, gross-out meathead he was meant to parody. 
To me, the transition of art from Simon Bisley to Val Semeckis really says it all about the arc of this character, from something rude and dangerous to spoiled cheese. I'd still, ar- I'd still argue that Jason Momoa was playing a general audience-friendly Lobo in Aquaman. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Uh-huh. That's not uh, – interesting, interesting. Yeah, it hurts a little because it's kind of true. Uh, yep. He says uh, uh, regarding – they're not really my type, Winona forever, but I've had to choose between the Tweed sisters. I'd pick Shannon Worry. Uh, I'm also with Gothos Mansion and worshipping Laura Gemser as the unheralded goddess of exploitation cinema. There you go. Another vote for Gemser. Now, when I put my flag in the Shannon Tweed camp, please understand I am not besmirching uh, Laura Gomser or anyone else. Uh, they're all wonderful in their own thing. I right. just personally – No, I understand. She, I understand. Yeah. I'm, but I'm saying they're not even compar- – I would say they're not even really comparable because they're just – they did okay. different kinds of movies. But they did the same thing for Teenage Boys. You well, see, that is, why they well that's absolutely true. Yes. Okay, there we go. Okay. <clears throat> you know what I noticed recently? Not that I was looking or anything. Shannon Tweed looks a lot like uh, Gates McFadden, just sort of from Star Trek Next Generation, the hair and the, the very regal sort of facial features. Something oh, to think about. I don't know what to make of that information. Let's just move on. Okay. Uh, Frank also writes, the Society of <laughs> – this is great. Society of Sin is a wicked name for a villain team at a company that doesn't already have a justice society and a secret society. <laughs> you only get two societies per universe, <laughs> one per alignment. I don't make the rules. <laughs> Thank you, Frank. I loved all of his comments. Those are great. All right, folks. Now we're going to do uh, – we're going to cover Zoom's Who, which is Zoom Yukonori's addendum to the definitive directory of the DC Universe. Now remember, you can go out to Redbubble and look up Professor Zoom and find some of his coffee mugs with some of these entries. And we are going to cover Fireman Feral, which is absolutely fantastic. And this will be on our gallery page, but you can find it also in his hard copy. Uh, it's Fireman Feral, and he is running at the camera in his fireman costume. In the Serpent, you've got a close-up of his face without his uh, fireman hat on. And in the background, you see him fighting flames. Names, art by Zoom Yukonori. The gist of it was Fireman Farrell first appeared in showcase number one, and it, it told the story of Fireman Farrell Jr., who was the son of a, a, a longtime center city fireman and renowned local hero. And it's all about how the junior son goes to the academy and learns and becomes a fireman and has some uh, encounters with a not-so-nice fellow co-worker, but they end up making a connection. And then years later, Fireman Farrell would appear throughout a number of different series, including a, a Superman-Batman story, where he ends up being the chief fire officer in Gotham City. Um, so what do you think of this one, Rob? Oh, I mean, it's it's a Zoom listing, which means it's awesome. Uh, it's yep. fantastic. Uh, but yeah, Fireman Farrell, like you mentioned, he first appeared in Showcase number one. I mean, that's why I think for the most part anybody remembered him because he was Probably. he was the first character uh, in what would, of course, become one of the more seminal DC series. He did not appear again for over 20 years until Paul <laughs> Levitz and Paul Kupperberg put him in Showcase number 100 because the the the... the the gist of Showcase 100 was that it featured, at, at the very least, a cameo by every single character that had been in Showcase. So, right. so Fireman Farrell does make an appearance. Uh, and as you said, he's been later used in the, in the universe. He appears in Crisis on Infinite Earths in one panel. He's being, intro- he's being interviewed by Lana Lang. And I'm going to go right out there and say DC needs to do a split book of Lady Cop and Fireman Farrell. <laughs> you know what I just realized? I never, I never figured this out. The minute you said he was in crisis, I looked. You know, I've got the the giant crisis poster on my wall, the five foot crisis poster, penciled by George Prez and painted by Alex Ross. And I've always noticed there's a fireman 
in one of the TV set panels. Mm-hmm. And I just looked over. Sure enough, that's Fireman Farrell. I can't go. believe it. Oh, that's so cool. Ah. So, yes, as, as you said, it's Zoom, so it's gorgeous. It's absolutely beautiful. Of course, it's done in the classic Who's Who styles. You've got the yellow dots, the whole thing. We'll have a, a version of this up on our image gallery as well, so you can enjoy it as well, because Zoom is the best. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right, folks. Well, we want to take a second to thank everybody who helped share our show on their social media timeline on Facebook and Twitter. And I know it sounds like I'm reading from a phone book every single time, folks, but uh, we want to recognize these people because they really help support the show and promote it because the only way to get the word out there is you guys. That's the only way we're going to promote the show. It's the only way other people are going to find us. And these individuals all went out of their way to share or um, retweet our show. And then that really helps build this community, which is so important to the show. So our thanks to Al Girding, Between the Pages, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chuck Rod- Rodriguez, Fan Comics Podcast, DCU of Color, Dr. Ange, Dr. Pop Culture BGSU, Dylan A. Lange, Edmore Jr., Green Lantern HG, Into the Weird, Jeffrey Brown, Justice Trek 2019, Kaiser the Great, Connell, Liz Ann Oswald, Martin Gray, Max Romero and his accounts, It's Plastic Man and the Mirror Factory, Max Traver, Michael Kramer, Monitor Earth Prime, Nicholas Alhelm, Paul Kien, Pop Culture Affidavit, Randy Caldwell, Read More Comics, Richard Field, Robert Lewis, Roger Preeb, Rolled, Stein, Rolled Spine Podcast, Sam Hitler, ouch, Scott X, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Siskoid, Storia Mark, Tim Price, Tomas Corsi, Waiting for Doom, Warlock Thanos Podcast, Willie Yarbrough, Xenogzog Xenophiles, Zoom Yukonori, and Zeb Oswald. Woof! Awesome. All right, folks. Well, as I said, we're going to take some of the images from this who's who and put them up on our image gallery on our website. And Rob, what's that website? Excuse me, I'm drinking some water. Fire and Water Podcast. <laughs> if I don't drink water every hour, I die. Fire and Water Podcast.com. <laughs> Perfect. Go out there to Who's Who and look for the image gallery for issue number nine. Now, next issue, very exciting. Tim Drake is Robin, is the featured cover entry. I cannot wait. Plus, Starfire, Angel and the Ape, Barry Allen is the Flash, the Shark, many, many more, and Firestorm. Woo! All right, that's awesome. I cannot wait for the next issue. And until then, folks, who's, who's next? next? Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Etrick and Arisia and Woody Weeks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Oh, man. We forgot Slipknot. Mr. Matthews, you're late for your shift at the Katana Banana, and you are fired. You uh, pick up about as often as Rob Kelly. This is David. Okay, bye.